The podcast Under the Stairs will feature movie spoilers and language which most listeners will find offensive. to the podcast Under the Stairs. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 23 of the podcast Under the Stairs, which will be featuring as a review Baz v Horror episode number 7, Baz Takes on Cannibals and Found Footage. I am your host Duncan McLeish and, well I've already given the cat the cat's out of the bag folks, um, I'm joined of course by my very special guest the man, the myth, the legend, the Baz. Umbongo, umbongo, they drink it in the Congo, sexy cannibal bitches. <laughs> How are we, Squire? <laughs> oh, umbongo, I remember that. As if it was I, um, I could not find uh, the Amazonian cannibal site <laughs> for hello. So that was the best I could come up with, my friend. For our American viewers that may not be aware, umbongo was a mixed fruit drink. When, uh, when Duncan and I were, when you were younger, that you got with them, and that was the tagline from the advert. It was indeed. <laughs> yeah, crazy man. Uh, I'm so doing. I'm doing over great. Scotland pissing themselves at that intro. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, uh, it depends how young they are. They might, like, sure. they maybe still don't even get that reference. <laughs> young bastards, whippersnappers. Um, I'm doing really well. How about yourself? How are you doing? I've, uh, oh God, I've, I've had better days, my friend, I'm not going to lie, um, <laughs> which we'll come on to talk about later on, but um, I'm, I'm suffering slightly from a hangover today, uh, my wife and I had friends over last night for dinner and there was whiskey involved, um, and I'm a little <laughs> hungover, and my choice of, well not my choice, your choice of viewing for me this afternoon did not help that situation at all, so I'm currently nursing a nice wee cup of tea. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> uh, so um like we start off every show it's as you know have you been checking out anything out with the film for today in the realms of horror that you'd like to talk about uh yeah i've actually been watching a few things uh, since i was last on um mostly tv based i've got to say um uh-huh. my wife and i finished the latest season of the walking dead last night uh, oh excellent uh, I don't know. Have you seen? Have you seen the yeah. season finale? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The season I'm, finale I'm... was brilliant. Um, the last two episodes, in fact, I thought were really good. Um, some of the episodes after the the mid season break were a bit dry. Um, to yeah, be honest. Uh, there seemed to be a fair bit of filler in it, um, but it picked up towards the end and left us with a decent kind of cliffhanger. Um, big Rick Grimes pulling out the big guns towards the end, I think they're fucked now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I won't go into anyone in case anybody's not seen it. But yeah, so thoroughly enjoyed that. That was excellent. Um Dusk till Dawn, we've been watching that obviously. Um we're gonna be talking about two episodes on this this very episode yeah, as well. Talking about that later on as well today. So we're up to episode four of that. Won't speak any more about it. We're going to cover that later on obviously. <laughs> um I made a start on season two of the following Oh, right. I know you were wanting to have a wee blether about that when we spoke 
yeah. uh, uh, previously about that. So yeah, I've been watching that. Um, it's fucking just more a season one, really, isn't it? Uh, well, I, th- I think my, my, my thing on it was I really like the powerful start on it. I, I think there's something quite... I think the show like hits the ground really running with the, the whole um, thing in the underground, in the subway. Yeah, yeah. Really those, fucking like that. creepy were those masks. Really fucking good. <laughs> See, when that happened, I was like, this show has come back with teeth. Yeah. And I'm totally down with that. Yeah. Um, I'm up to date with that. So depending on where you are, I just feel that the show... Now, anyway, see when you get to where I am, you're going to be loving it because I think it's it's now finally found its niche and it's delivering what I wanted all along, which the show never did. But there's a couple of episodes near the maybe the first two episodes I really liked, maybe episodes three, four, possibly five. I just feel like it slipped right back into the kind of nasty habits that season one had, where you're getting a wee bit of story and then oh, look what's happened, and then a wee bit of story and then. Oh, look what's happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that I'm up to that... about season four or something. Eh, no, season four, episode four or something like that. Right, um, right. And it's been revealed that the the woman survivor of the train attack, she's one of them. And at that point, I was about like, oh, here we fucking go. Everyone's yeah. a serial killer. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's there's been some decent stuff in it. Um, I think my biggest disappointment was, I think they brought, um, what's his face, the main serial killer Joe they brought yeah. him back too early I think um, yeah. I would have liked it more if there had been this is he, isn't he dead you know what I mean uh, backwards and forwards a wee bit I think they could have eked that out to quite good effect but they didn't they pretty much end the episode one there he is with a beard yeah <laughs> he was sporting, a, sporting a, a, a fine Baz beard oh it was awesome and manly wasn't it <laughs> I, I fell under his hypnotic spell let me tell you <laughs> I think the thing, I think the thing about these things, especially with television, is I think certain certain TV programs are scared to try and make things a bit more dangerous. Um, for example, maybe cutting a couple of episodes with Joe Carroll out it because the bottom line is it might lose fans. You might have fans saying, well, "Why is Joe Carroll not in it?" Because yeah. just certain certain and that annoys me because with you, I'm totally a hundred percent. I'm like that. Of the opinion that we don't need Joe Carroll in it straight away. We could have this this whole kind of this resurrection thing that they're trying to do. That to me can last a couple of episodes yeah, easily, definitely, definitely, and then get some Joe Carroll. But I can see why they've done it. It's obviously to let you know right from the the outset that Joe Carroll did survive the end of season one. Uh, and I mean, I, like I say, I'm a, I'm a few ahead of you now. I think I'm on episode twelve coming up. All so. Right. All right. So um, season's not that far away from being finished. And um, I've liked where everything from about episode number seven onwards for me has been like, it's been hitting its stride and it's been excellent. Um, But there's a few, there's a few in there where my big gripe was that it it fell into, because I thought a lot of season one had lazy writing. And that's not to say I didn't enjoy season one. I just felt that we were getting a bit of a story and then we had to trust someone oh, who, who just happened to be part of the following. And then we're moving along, we need to trust this person. Oh, they're part of the following. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. And I, that to me, it was like, ah, right, whatever. And then there was like massive inconsistencies where, you know, you know if, it's, it's, if it's the FBI tracking you down, right, and you're on American soil, that regardless how good you are at cloning phones and all the rest, America's pretty much secure with that. They track down terrorists quick. So, um, you know, that sort of thing. So it required you to 
to suspend your disbelief quite quick. Um, but I've I really like the definitely the second half of this one um, has has really kind of stepped up things. And I, I, it's the first time I, I can ever say this. I'm actually really enjoying the follow, and I'm really eager to see where it's going to go. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. No, I'm enjoying it myself. Um, it's good to hear that it picks up as well. Uh, I'm looking forward to. It. I'm going to need you back in and get a bit more of it watched. Yeah, that was excellent. Um, and the one other thing, and this might interest you because I don't, you may not have actually seen this. <clears throat> uh-huh. I, I recorded a rather obscure horror film on the Sci-Fi Channel uh, oh, a right. couple of weeks ago. Um, a film called Sony Flesh of Man. Have you ever? No, seen No, I've it? never seen that. Never seen it. It's a Scottish film. Um, now it, it's Sci-Fi Channel, so it's. It's not of the highest calibre, I'm going to say. Do you know what I mean? But um, it, it's about the legend of Sonny Bean. Um, oh, now, right. You know who Sonny Bean is, yeah. I've heard the name. Yeah, for, for anybody that doesn't, Sonny Bean is a Scottish legend of a cannibal. Um, he was, he lived, I think it was in Ayrshire, supposed to have been. He basically lived in a, a cave. And he had this huge incestuous family that they were all interbreeding with each other. And they lived in this cave in the middle of nowhere. And they used to kidnap people. This was in like the 1700s, I think. Um, right. They used to kidnap people off the hills and eat them for food. Mm. Um, obviously, they eat them for food. They didn't eat them for fucking books. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> Shits and giggles. Yeah. Um, and I first, I had never heard of the legend of Sonny Bean until I picked up an album by a band called The Real Mackenzies. Now, The Real Mackenzies are a kind of Canadian version of the Dropkick Murphys, but instead of Irish folk influences, they use Scottish folk influences, and they do a lot right. of kind of traditional Scottish songs in a kind of punk way, like the Scots were hay and Loch Lomond and all that, they punk them right up. And they do Aye. a song called The Ballad of Sonny Bean. Um... And I had never heard of this Sonny Bean. Um, so just that way you kind of Google it and I found out about the legend. And I became quite interested in it. It's quite a kind of, it's a really creepy, horrible kind of Scottish legend. So anyway, this film is based around that. Um, it basically, at the start, it explains um, about the legend of Sonny Bean and what happened to them. Eventually, they were captured by the, the army, rounded up, and they, they killed them all. But this takes mm-hmm. the premise that one of them survived and went on to sort of sire this line of killers and so basically uh, girls start getting abducted uh, in Edinburgh um, by this mysterious figure in a taxi kind of thing and it's basically this descendant of Sonny Bean who takes them back and there's some kind of gore, there's quite a lot of gore thrown in for effect and stuff like that Um, and basically there's a a little kind of clan of them living in this farmhouse in the middle of fucking nowhere Um, Uh and a kind of a reporter guy gets on the trail of them kind of thing and there's a cop Scottish people will probably recognise a few of the folk that are in it um, do you remember Bobby the barman from Still Game oh yeah yeah Yeah, he plays the cop in it and stuff like that um, so you, oh, like Scottish people who watch Scottish television would probably recognise one or two of the actors that are in it um, it's not the best film in the world ever but it did <laughs> I kept going back I didn't watch it all in a one I think I watched it in about two or three parts um, but I did keep going back just to see how, how it ended up. It's pretty ridiculous, to be honest. But it, it's worth a watch. <laughs> and particularly with you being Scottish, I think you would probably quite dig it. It's, there's quite a lot of cheesy bits in it as well. Do you know what I mean? It's definitely one to tick off your list anyway. Oh, I, I, will, I will try my best to hunt it down because I'm, uh, 
I, I like um, any any see um, any films like set in Scotland and things like that yeah. in general, especially horror films. Love mm-hmm. a bit of that. So. Yeah, so yeah. a lot of Edinburgh shots in it. A lot of Edinburgh sort of backgrounds and stuff used. Um, in fact, some of that actually kind of reminded me of the part of Edinburgh that you get married in. You know, down that oh, kind yeah. of part of the old town there. Um, Canongate, yeah, yeah, down that, down area. that way. Um, a few of the kind of abduction scenes in that, I think, were probably filmed round about that area. Excellent. So yeah, so that was Sony Flesh of Man. Oh, cool! I will get, I will get on that, my good friend. <laughs> uh, that's apart from what we're about to talk about. That has really been my horror viewing for the last couple of weeks. Awesome, awesome. Baby well, steps, I'll... man. Baby steps. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I'm glad that you kind of broke yourself in watching a, a cannibal film before you watched. Uh, the, the one we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I would imagine that you had varying different degrees of horror when watching both of them, though. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> um, I checked out recently uh, Cheap Thrills, which I did a review for, for Rock and Reel Reviews. I'm going to send you a copy over, and then I think the plan is to get you, me, and uh, the boss man, Dave, to do an upcoming episode of the podcast Under the Stairs, probably within the next month, to chat about that film, because I think we'll have loads to talk about. I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I saw the trailer a while back. We talked about it on the other podcast, uh, just the trailer, and I saw that, and yeah. I thought it looked brilliant. I think it looks really good. Looking forward yeah, to that, I've got to say. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, I've also, because I've been working my way, because I've got Love Film and Netflix, or is it, what's it, it's now known as Amazon Prime, sorry, Amazon Prime streaming and Netflix, uh, I tend to switch between the two and create like playlists of films that I want to watch. Mm-hmm. So I've, I found that that Amazon Prime one had a ridiculous amount of films on it, so I've been trying to kind of fire through them. So I'd watched The Burning recently, which is a, it's a slasher film from the very, very early 80s, kind of lesser known slasher film. I'd watched that because I knew I was going to be doing... A show on slashers for the Midnight Horror Show. Yeah. Um. So I'd watched that. It was really good. And then while I was doing that, I started going through more films I had seen before, but not seen in ages. So I went back and watched Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which I fucking love that movie, and it's so fucking good. Um, kind of low budget film from the, the from the eighties. Um, uh, famously stars uh, what's his face, Michael Rooker. The guy who was in The Walking Dead, you know, the guy that had the stump with the, the brother of Daryl. Oh yeah, Merrill. Yes, Merrill. Yeah. It's a very early role for that actor, right. uh, where he basically is loosely based on Henry Lee Lucas, the serial killer. Very loosely based. Uh-huh. Um, really enjoy that film. Going back to um, also had a chance to check out uh, a kind of full documentary found footage sort of film called The Conspiracy. Um, thoroughly enjoyed that, actually. Um, it's kind of, it's these two filmmakers that decide that they want to do a kind of documentary on conspiracy theorists in America. You know, people that get so bogged down with the, the thought of conspiracy that they, you know, they just cease to function. They become like, and, and societies look at them at being quite crazy. And then um, they follow this one particular guy who has all these theories, weird and wonderful theories, and then just disappears the next day. One day he's like kicking around and the next day he's gone. Uh, so one of them basically takes all these clippings and paperwork 
away home and starts to follow it himself and in turn becomes obsessed with conspiracies um, and then it starts taking a slightly more sinister turn after that I, I thought it was I thought it was surprisingly good for a film that I'd never heard of before um, I have uh, watched two films for the, the next episode of the podcast Under the Stairs in Dark Skies which um, is a American horror film from last year which deals with alien abduction and In Fear which is a British horror film set in Ireland which has a kind of a vibe about like the films like The Hitcher and stuff like that it was, it was really good as well and last night I checked out the remake of Fright Night uh, Fright Night being a film from the 80s which I totally love and surprisingly not a shit remake I, I, I didn't think it was a great remake it's not as good as the original yeah. but I didn't mind either and it stars Colin Farrell playing a fucking creepy vampire next door so quite enjoyed that mm-hmm. and um, also checked out uh, which I'll be doing a review for um, my first uh, screener from Arrow which was White of the Eye which we briefly spoke to, spoke about before we came on here which yeah. is a surprisingly good Jallo thriller um, from 1986, which what I had never heard of before. Jallo. What does that mean? Right, Ed, Ed Jallo is... <laughs> right, a, a Jallo um, comes from the... It's a series of Italian novels which used to have yellow covers. And basically, they dealt with... They're, they're, what we would say is the, the beginning of the slasher kind of craze, really. They uh-huh. basically have a killer who wears a glove... And all the early Jallo films, you basically saw it was through the killer's POV and all we saw was their gloves. Right. So, um, but that that in turn is essentially what slashers became because slasher films were a killer, masked or unmasked, who we were put in their POV as they went around killing people. Mm-hmm. And we, so it's still like that, although it's more of a mystery who did it sort of thing. So this kind of this kind of plays into that. Like some of some of the earlier work of uh, Dario Argento, which is a filmmaker I love, um it, it falls into Jallo. And this it's not unusual for it's technically not Jallo because it's not Italian, but um I think we could probably I'm not I'm not gonna be that snobby. It's definitely influenced by those works. Uh, and it was surprisingly good. It was a, it was a really fucking good film. So I'll be doing a review of that, and that'll be going up probably in Rock and Reels soon. And I might actually do an audio review for it for the podcast under the stairs as well Excellent. on an upcoming episode. So yeah, apart from that, I've not really not really watched that much. The same as you, a lot of television. The new series of Hannibal is fucking owning it right now. It is absolutely awesome. Um, yeah, is, is, really it, is that fucking... on normal TRs? Is it on Sky or anything over here? Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's about to start up on Sky over here. Right, just that. I um, mean, two minds, mate. I, I wasn't a fan. I watched the first season. Um, did you get I, to the end of it? I did. I thought the, I thought the first season started off very well, um, mm-hmm. and I was quite enjoying it. Towards the end, though, as, as you saw, uh, what was the main character's name again? Mads Mickles. Uh, plays Hannibal, and... Um, uh, Hugh Dancy plays Will Graham. Yeah, well, as you sort of see Will's kind of descent, if you like, it, it got, it was just, it was too dark for me. It, it was right. so dark, it got to the point I just couldn't fucking really deal with it. Do you know what I mean? Right. I, I think it's worth checking out. Um, the beginning, the very opening scene in season two um, has Hannibal chopping up like stuff in his kitchen like he usually does. Yeah. And he tilts his knife, and as he's tilting his knife, he sees Lawrence Fishburne come in 
and he's kitchen, but it's no with the usual friendly panache that the two of them have between each other. Okay. And um, they make eye contact, and then they have this epic fucking fight scene. Now, this is like an opening two minutes of the episode. They have this epic fight scene in which Hannibal eventually bests him by slitting his throat and shoving him in a cupboard, and then it jumps, uh, it comes up on the screen 12 weeks earlier, and then we jump back into the story. So we know that's how the season's going to finish. I see that fucking intrigues me now, Duncan. Now it's going to build up. It's going to build up to that point, and obviously it takes up. It takes up right from the fact that Will Graham's been arrested. This is all spoilers for anyone that hasn't seen the first series. I'm really, really sorry. Um, but yeah, it takes up the Will's been incarcerated for the murders. Yeah. Um, and Hannibal has been. Hannibal's basically felt his place within the FBI, so he's doing all the criminal profiling now. Um, oh, I see. So it, it's it's really good because um, the I mean it explores more of it explores through like flashbacks and stuff like that exactly how much Hannibal fucked up Will Graham. Mm-hmm. Like like we've observed particular scenes in season one from Will's point of view, and then it does flashbacks and shows it from Hannibal's point of view. Um, so I I think it's very worth very much worth checking out. Um, it's still fairly dark, but. Um, the fact that we know that this epic confrontation is going to happen um, is worth checking it out, I think. Yeah. I think Bates I'm going to actually so... piqued my, piqued my interest. <laughs> I'm good at that. Um, Bates Motel started back up. It's been alright. I'm not really sure where they're going. They're treading, not treading water, but they're giving us a wee bit too much of the story about the town and not necessarily focusing enough on um, Norman's character. Yeah, that's surprising. Uh, I know you loved the season one. I, I loved season yeah. one as well. I really enjoyed it. Um, not... It's given us a lot. A lot's Sorry. happened, Baz. It's just, it just to me, it's like we obviously know that he's like we obviously know at the end of season one that Norman's killed off that teacher, and they really kind of dismissed that part of the story pretty quick. Um, so it's set right. like three months after the, those events, and um, I'm just kind of like. That's like a pivotal thing that's happened now. Yeah, I would quite totally. like to see them. I would quite like to see them, kind of more establish more things about that, and they haven't really done it yet. But we're only on episode four or something like that. So I mean, there's plenty still to go. There's like another six episodes or something for them to tie in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I've got that one set up to tape anyway. I think maybe the first episode is shown over here, but I've not got yeah. watching it yet. I'll probably let a few build up before I actually dive into that one. Think that's probably a safe move, my lad. Yeah. Safe move. But yeah, uh, that, so that's our introduction. We're gonna jump out right now. You're gonna hear a couple of audio wee bits and bobs. Um, in fact, you know, actually, I'm, I'm. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm just gonna. I'm gonna go down the creaky set of stairs and get the news stories for the news segment coming up next. So I will be right back after this. The news. And welcome back, and it's time to talk about some news stories. So the first story we'll kick into it because I've got the Baz on, and he is the man who you go to when anything comic book related comes up. And of course, we've had a previous discussion on this. It's of course the televised um, series or based on the character of Constantine, and um, there'd been some information on Shock Till You Drop this week which uh, basically laid out 
10 things we need to know about the Constantine pilot. So, uh, I've sent this over to Baz, and Baz has read through them, haven't you? I have indeed, sir. Right, so you're basically going to help us here um, in terms of, is this authentic? Is this within the universe of Constantine? Does this make sense? Uh, and then what we might do is chat about where you think, you know, this is all going to fit in, and is this, once again, is this something that's going to, as a fan of the, the comics and stuff, be something that's going to pique your interest? Mm-hmm. So, obviously, I, what I'll do is I'll just read them out, and then we'll get your uh, take on them. So, it says, the first thing it says is, the pilot will take in, uh, take place in and around New York City. So, is that where the comics are based, Baz? No. No? Um, Hellblazer, uh, the character of John Constantine is English. Uh-huh. He's a Liverpudlian who lives in London, and the vast majority of the storylines that I have read took place in London. Uh-huh. Um, there is, uh, as, I, as I said when we spoke with us before, my favourite run on Hellblazer was by an Irish writer called Garth Ennis, uh-huh. a very famous comic book writer who did stuff like Preacher and so on. Um, and one of his storylines was a storyline called Damnation's Flame, which sees Constantine travel to New York, uh-huh. um, essentially on a holiday. It, it, it kind of comes at the end of some very traumatic periods in his life, and he goes, if you like, on a holiday to the States, uh, and it goes very badly wrong mm-hmm. um, when he's there. And he essentially kind of journeys through hell, but hell is America, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Thing, you yeah. Know? Um, it wasn't my favourite of Ennis's storylines, but it was very good, and... and to my knowledge of the stuff I've read, that was the only one that was primarily set in, in the States. There may have been, uh, there's been a good few years worth of stuff I've not read, so it may have focused more in the States then. But the, the character himself is English. Yeah, all oh, right, right. So, but uh, I can kind of see American show, American reboot, London and New York. If you're going to pick a city to do it in, New York probably makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Right, cool. It says, when we first find John, we learn he has voluntarily checked himself into a psychiatric clinic. He's haunted by an incident in which he lost a nine-year-old girl to a demon who has dragged her soul to hell. The incident has left a significant impact on his life that has a... Well, that doesn't even... What's the impact on his life? And it's hat is driving him. I think what it's supposed to be, in, and that's driving him. That's what like, I thought. That's what it's supposed to be. Poor writing, shock till you drop. Um, yeah, I know. Listen, see, when you get shit like this, send it to the podcast under the stairs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't give it a shock till you drop. Send it to us. Yeah, it says he checks himself out of the hospital after six months to find something sinister afoot in the realm of the supernatural. So, um, is this like a brand new storyline then? Um, I... I think there have been there's been storylines where he's been committed basically to psychiatric uh, facilities. Um, he, uh, he he sacrificed a lot of people in his life, John Constantine, to get where to where he did in, in terms of his ability to use magic and so on. Yeah. Um, he kind of shat on everybody, family, friends, everything kind of thing. So he is very haunted by the demons of his past and in a lot of the early ones, the Jamie Delano run and stuff like that, um, he would almost be seen talking to the ghosts of people that he sort of threw under the bus, if you like. Um, the the bit about the girl, there was a character uh, of a girl called Astra, uh-huh. uh, who was a little girl who he essentially betrayed to a demon in order to win a kind of battle if you like, and that wee girl ended up going to hell, and she comes back in, I think it's the 
the final storyline in Garth Ennis's run. It was a storyline called uh, Rake at the Gates of Hell. This demon child comes back to kind of haunt Constantine and almost seeing her almost pushes him over the edge kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I think possibly that's where the, the character of the little girl has come from. Right, right. It says, at the point number three, John's a clever wise-ass. His business card reads, Exorcist, de- Demonologist, and the Master of the Dark Arts. But as he tells his doctor, he should replace Master with Petty Dabbler because he hates to put on airs. He also doesn't like to talk much about his past. He masses emotion in wry humour. You you pretty much said previously that his character's a bit droll and kind of self-serving. And Was he a bit of a smart arse as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean the 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 reason I've loved Constantine so much is the main character is that he's an utter prick. Do you know what I mean? He really, really fucking is. He has no time for anybody else, um, particularly other folk that dabble in magic. He has no respect for the vast majority of these people. He kind of sneers at them. Do you know what I mean? And he does quite often describe himself as just fucking some weird idiot that messes about in magic kind of thing. Yeah. He almost doesn't have an awful lot of respect for himself either. So yeah, that. That pretty much nails it, I've got to say. Um, I, do, I do like that kind of description of it. They seem to have got the character right, certainly. Cool. It says, point number four, we won't see John in his classic trench coat right away, but he gets there. You said before that the trench coat needs to be there and it needs to be grimy and it needs to look un- unkept and stuff like that. Yeah. I would imagine he's not going to be wearing that if he's in a psychiatric ward. So uh-huh, yeah. I think- I mean, it is absolutely integral. You can't do John Constantine without that raincoat. Um yeah, like you say, it, it might possibly just be because he's in a mental institution at the start that they don't have to, but it needs to come in. It needs to come in fairly fucking quick as well. Yeah, <laughs> got to say. <laughs> it says uh, point five: an angel Manny has been assigned to John to help ease his soul into damnation. John hates angels. Yes, he does. Um, there's a number of angel characters um, appear in the comics um, and there was obviously there was Gabriel appeared in the, the Keanu yeah, film as well very good um, and he does he, he fucking hates them he has no time for them he thinks they're kind of snobbish pricks kind of thing and he uses them an awful lot um, he will gain control over them yeah. um, the, the, the character of Gabriel appeared in Garth Ennis's run and he essentially gets control over Gabriel, gets his soul kind of thing. All right. um, and he's able to manipulate him and use him. This bit about the the angel being assigned to John to help ease his soul into damnation, I'm not quite sure what that's all about, I've got to say. Right. Um, that doesn't really ring any bells with me. But the idea of having him interact with angels is, is pretty integral as well, yeah. Cool. Point six. Lid Parsons, a young woman who works at a rental car facility, gets caught up in John's world when she discovers something is after her. Liv's deceased father, Jasper, knew John, and John owes him a debt. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been... Uh, it it kind of almost looks... Um, in fact, it is mentioned later on in point nine that this Liv Parsons is almost a kind of love interest type idea. Right. Um, now... There was a character in Garth Ennis's run called Kit, an Irish girl, mm-hmm. um, and they, that was the love interest. There's not been very many love interests in Hellblazer because he's just not that fucking type of guy. He, you know, like I say, he'll sacrifice anybody to get to where he needs to be in terms of using magic and so on. Yeah. Um, but Kit kind of broke the mold on that. But the, the, what I liked about Kit was she had no interest in any of the stuff that he did and he liked that he found that's what drew him to Kit right she knew what he did 
she wanted nothing to do with it and just said, you know, as long as you keep it away from me, that's fine. I won't ask about it. Keep it away from me. Don't ever let it impact on me. And it does at one point, and that leads to the, the breakup of that relationship, to be honest, which sends them into a complete spiral. So yeah. this, to my knowledge, that this live character isn't one that I'm familiar with. Um, I'm right. not saying it didn't come in in later ones, but there have been female characters involved with him. Right, right. Um, Papa Midnight, an imposing Cuban man who can dream the future, is ailing when we first find him. He's doing a lot of cocaine because he has to stay awake. Yeah. Is that on yeah, the, on the Papa nose? Papa Midnight is a very uh, famous sort of, not a villain if you like, but another character that appears uh, in Constantine and Hellblades of the comics. Um, the portrayal of him in... The, the Keanu Reeves film wasn't actually bad. He's essentially a witch doctor. He's a, a kind of voodoo high priest, if you like. Yeah. Um, and Constantine, they're, well, they're not really enemies. They kind of jostle a little bit. Um, Constantine is very aware that the guy has real power um, and doesn't go to his way to piss him off kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about Cuban. That might be new. I don't, to my knowledge, he was a kind of Jamaican, kind of, or, you know, the kind of Caribbean. Yeah, like Haiti, a Haitian. I think he might actually have been so the Cuban bit. I'm not sure. I would be interesting to see how they deal with Papa Midnight in this because he is a very popular character in the comics. Mm-hmm. The bit about doing cocaine because he has to stay awake. I think that harks back to the very first Hellblazer comics. Right, there was a Papa Midnight appeared in that, but there was another character who had to stay awake. It was something to do with his dreams. Um, and he did drugs to basically keep himself awake because he was too frightened to sleep. Right. Um, it appears that we've almost kind of merged the two there. Right. Uh, cool. Cool. Um, point eight. Expect to meet Chaz, John's driver, who's tall, sensitive, quiet type, yet is quite knowledgeable about the supernatural himself. Yeah, Chaz again is another integral figure uh, in in the comics. I keep saying the word integral. That's Apologies right. when you're listening back to this. If I say that every two fucking seconds, <laughs> I'm just kind of heard myself talking. But he, he's a big, he's a very important character, Chaz. He's, he's John's best pal. Um, who again, John treats like shit because he treats everybody like shit, kind of thing. He's mm. a, a taxi driver, Chaz, um, and you know Constantine just kind of fucking barks orders at him treats him like crap if there's ever any fucking shit job to do Chaz does it and he does it um, and he does it almost without question and it, it, for a lot of the comic book it was just basically put across that he owed John John yeah. had done something for him um, a long time ago and it won Chaz's kind of unswerving loyalty to him yeah. um, and you do find out what that was, it, it was quite bizarre in that it was to do with a monkey that was kept as a pet by Chaz's mother. All right. It, it was it was quite disappointing. I kind of, you almost expected, you know, like Chaz died and was damned to go to hell and Constantine saved him from going to hell or something like that. Aye, it's aye. not. It was this weird thing about a fucking cross-dressing monkey. <laughs> Um, it, it was quite odd. Uh, in the comic books, though, Chaz has no knowledge really on the supernatural. Uh-huh. He, has, he is the straight man in all of this kind of thing. He's a, he drives Constantine about. He's folk a kitten if they need a kitten kind of thing. He's quite a big burly guy. The, the description of him physically sounds very much like Chaz. And that is where their hand... Uh, 
what am I trying to say? They're miles ahead of the Keanu Reeves film because casting Shia LaBeouf as Chaz was a fucking travesty. <laughs> casting and, Shia LaBeouf in anything's a travesty. Yeah, he was just this whiny, annoying, little wise-cracking taxi-driving twat. Um, <laughs> and he couldn't have been further from the character of Chaz. It really couldn't have been. And that was one of the things that hugely irritated me in the film. Yeah, yeah. Ruined it for me. Um, so physically it sounds very much like the Neil Chaz the bit about being knowledgeable about the supernatural it's maybe required as a plot device do you right. know what I mean um, but that does stray for the, the comics a bit right um, point nine and we've kind of touched on this already the pilot is brimming with possessions ghosts Liv discovers a way to see the dead um, and demons and the story does an apt job of not losing its audience in the mythology well they're saying that but we've not seen it yet uh, Liv is our conduit to John's world of rituals pendants black magic and more it handles the exposition well so once I think obviously the person that's wrote this has actually seen yeah seen it I'm assuming um, because they're making particular comments so we can't really talk that much about this one but 10 says the foundation is set for a long lasting partnership between Liv and John now that she's aware of the world beyond ours she wants to she wants to use her knowledge to help others but is John willing to assist her I mean you've already kind of touched on this as well in that his previous relationship in the comic books the woman didn't really want involved with that side of things uh, yeah. so this kind of sounds like you like you were saying a love interest and they've just decided that if they're going to do the love interest they're going to tie that into the fact that she must be aware of the supernatural yeah. thing it says she can see the dead in the previous statement so yeah. I mean, I've got to say from the 10 points as I was reading them yesterday I, I was quite excited about a lot of it up until 9 and 10 yeah. and I'm not that struck on this to be honest um, again it, it, the, the last one in particular it almost points to them becoming like this kind of crime fighting duo yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I don't like that idea at all. He's not the type of guy that will go and help people when they've got problems. He falls into these adventures, if you like. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's almost like he can't stop bad shit happening around him and he just tries to deal with it. It sounds almost like they become kind of supernatural detectives or something. And for me, I think if this series goes down that road, I wouldn't be very... It would need to do a lot to win me over if that's the kind of direction they're going to take, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I dare say more information as and when we hear it, and I'll make sure that the Baz is on here to keep us right. Um, And we'll jump on to our next story, which is also TV-related. There's been a shitload of information coming out about American Horror Story Season 4. Awesome! Which now has its official name... Freak show. Um, it will be set in the 1950s and will follow a travelling circus um, of freaks. Um, and uh, Jessica Lange will play, to, to my, the best of my knowledge, her character will be German. Mm-hmm. So, quite looking forward to that. But there's been even more information coming out now. So this uh, reports some casting that's going to be involved. So... And by the way, just the, the the names that are returning as well has got me so fucking over the moon. So uh, this this article was published on the 29th of March. It says, Last night at Paley Fest here in Los Angeles, Ryan Murphy and his team from American Horror Story took to the stage to reflect on American Horror Story Coven and to look ahead at American Horror Story Freak Show, the FX series' fourth story arc. Murphy's revealed to the audience uh, that Michael... 
and I can never pronounce this guy's surname, Chicklis from oh, the, Sh- the Shield and Fantastic Four, yep. will be joining the Freak Show cast. He will star as Evan Peters' father. Returning to the show as well will be Jessica Lang, obviously, but Kathy Bates is also coming back. Sarah Paulson, Angela Bassett, Jamie Brewer, Dennis O'Hare, and Francis Con- uh, Conroy. Um, details about Freak Show pulled from Paleyfest Twitter are the fourth season is about Freak Show, not a carnival or circus, and it will be set in Florida. Expect a new season in October. I'm fucking ready for this. Bring this one on, Baz. Yeah, I'm quite excited about this, I've got to say. I like the premise that they've used, the Freak Show idea of things sounds brilliant. A bit similar to Carnival. Yes. Um, which was uh, an HBO series that I was Loved a big that show. fan of. It, yeah. it was the... I've said before, I like these period set pieces um, and Carnival just blew my mind in the 20s. It's a big period that I've always been interested in America um, during the Depression and all that. I thought it was a brilliant setting. Um, And while it was a a travelling Carnival slash circus type thing, there were oddities and so on in that um, and I like that. So yeah, I think it's a great premise for it. Um, I'm pretty stoked to hear Michael Chiklis is in it. He uh, also appeared... I don't know if you ever watched Vegas. I didn't know. Which that was a great show. Me and my wife watched that, and um, he plays a kind of mobster in it, and it's about the very early days of Las Vegas when it's just starting. You know, they're building all the casinos and that, and the mob are obviously seeing this as a, a got a potential gold mine. They want to get in right at the start and get these casinos in place and stuff like that. And he played a great character in that, and again, it was set in the fifties. Of the early 60s, I think. Um, and, and he worked very well in, in that kind of setting. So I'm pretty stoked to hear he's in it. Actually, I quite like uh, Chicklis. I think he's a great actor. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm totally down with this. Like you were saying, the premise of it kind of has got me sucked in right away. I'm kind of yeah. hoping that it's uh, Murphy's kind of homage to um, uh, Todd Browning's uh, Freaks from uh, like the early 20s, which is a fucking film that's... Is it the early 20s or was it the 40s? Whenever it came out, it was so far ahead of its time, it was unbelievable. And um, I'm totally down with this. I cannot wait. And the fact that Kathy Bates is coming back, Jessica Lang's coming back, um, we've got even Angela Bassett's coming back. And these were some of my favourite characters from Coven, so I'm yeah, really forward um, to that. They've all, all been great. I mean, I know Kathy Bates was only in Coven and she was great. And I mean, you know, I've gone on record before, I didn't really enjoy Coven. Yes. Um, but Bates is. Uh, performance and it was immense and yeah. Bassett and, and uh, who's the other one? Uh, Jessica Lang's been Jessica in all four. Lang, yeah. yeah, I mean they've they've been tremendous throughout the whole thing. Yeah, um, as long as they keep fucking Stevie Nicks out, I'm happy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, they tell me now that we've never actually spoke about it. Still not watched I, it. <laughs> oh, have you not? Oh, he's just about ruined it there. Uh, uh, okay, get it. Watch me talk about it. <laughs> I will do. I will do. <laughs> uh, our final news story, and this one's like total fucking orgasm material for me. Unfortunately, it's something that you might not have much of a knowledge on at all, I'm afraid. But uh, more details have come out about Phantasm Five Ravager, um, and the director has been revealed. Um, the team at Phantasm Archives have thrown a few tidbits about Phantasm Five or Phantasm Ravager into the news ring this afternoon. 
<clears throat> Today we got word of the fifth instalment of the franchise and it's definitely on its way. And Shock Till You Drop had learned that it was already shot. Phantasm Archives says that the project has been in the works since 2008. They broke it down into bullet point style. They said the original working title for several years was Reggie's Tasks. Reggie's the reoccurring character from all of them. He's like our, our main uh, our main hero. Um, it says the original cast members put an appearance along with some other Don Coscarelli regulars. Don Coscarelli was the director of the first four. Um, it says it was partly filmed in Crestline, California at Reggie Bannister's own hometown. And many of the familiar series elements are back. The Kuda and the Sphere especially. Oh yes, there will be blood. Um, the last statement was they did not write this over the site but Phantasm Archives were able to confirm to me, that's the guy at Shock that none other than David Hartman wrote and directed Phantasm 5 Hartman is an artist who's done a ton of work for various studios and genre personalities like Rob Zombie um, he even did Shock Till You Drop's official poster back in 2007 when we first launched. Don Coscarelli has been supera- supervising the fifth film, so we do not think, uh, so don't think he's not involved. So Phantasm is this series that originally appeared in the late 70s um, and has had three sequels since, spanning the time period since then, which is, there's always been quite a gap in time between each of the films. Um, the guy behind it is Don Coscarelli, who is a, a director that I admire greatly. In fact, his film John Dies at the End, which came out last year, is in my it was in my top ten films of that year. And he's also behind Bubba Hotep, which was the trailer I posted on your page not that long ago, Baz. Yeah, the Elvis thing. Yeah, that's Don Coscarelli. He just seems to do really weird sort of things. And this is it's a huge deal for, for like hardcore horror fans because this the guy that plays the main villain in this one, or the character's known as the Tall Man, um, and the actor is very old. And um, I don't think he's got many years left. And people have, have always been wanting to see the film that will tie up the end. You know, and we were always worried that he might die and they would never be able to finish it or they'd have to recast him, which wouldn't work. And he basically plays, uh, wait for this one, a dimension-jumping, time-travelling um, mortuary worker <laughs> who works at a funeral parlour. So, um, a mortician, basically. And um, he seems to be able to... Con- he controls these metal spheres which can have different sort of drill bits and all the rest. And he doesn't say much, but I, he does have this particular way of saying boy, which is more like, boy, which is fucking amazing. Um, and it's they're out there, they're wacky, but they're so much fun. And people have been speculating. I mean, I've been talking, since this site started, me and Graham um, had been talking about doing a Phantasm retrospective, and I'm quite glad we didn't, because I'll tell you right now, as soon as Phantasm 5 comes out, that's on. It's on like yeah. Kong. Um, cannot fucking wait. They need to. That film needs to get into my eye sockets now. <laughs> and um, I dare say you will get a chance at some point. I will sit you down and what you can watch. Phantasm. It's a yeah, fucking. I've never, never, never seen any of them, mate. So I can't really comment a great deal on this. But you seem very excited. Oh, can't fucking wait, man. <laughs> this is good. This is good news. This is the sort of news I like to hear. Um, and I, I was a wee bit dubious that Coscarelli wasn't directing it because. Coscarelli to me is phantasm, but the fact that he's overseeing the whole project puts a bit more faith 
that it's not just a studio trying to capitalise and make money out of it. It's yeah. something that he wants to do as well. So, and that's the end of our new segment. We are going to take a very quick break and then me and the Baz are going to bring you up to date with um, the two latest episodes of... Uh, from Dust Till Dawn televised adaptation of the film and um, we'll, we'll fill you in with what's been happening or what's not been happening in that show thus far What? Uh, so you'll be hearing from us when we come back right after this break Good morning sweetheart He quit the parish for good Why would you quit? A shepherd can't lead his flock if he's lost the path himself we do not take hostages, and we're heading straight for the border. Something happened in that bank. Something that got you killing. You haven't stopped since. Richie, he drew the same symbol here. That can't be a coincidence. He's the killer we've been after. And welcome back, and you have just heard the trailer for episode number three of the From Dust Till Dawn TV adaptation. Uh, episode number three was called Mistress. Uh, officially aired in America 25th of March 2014. We got it on the 26th of March 2014. The very quick synopsis, and then I'm going to turn it over to my man, the Baz, um, is uh, while Richie deals with his visions, Seth and Carlos plan to cross the border. Meanwhile, the Fuller's RV breaks down and Ranger Gonzalez asks for help. So uh, this one was directed by Eduardo Sanchez, um, those that might not know about Eduardo Sanchez is he is um, a very famous uh, horror director. I'll just jump into that just very quickly. Um, and he's probably his most famous film of all was The Blair Witch Project. So he was one of the guys behind that film, which is pretty fucking cool. Um, so, Baz, uh, do you want to talk us through a bit more of what happened in Mistress? Will do, my friend. Uh, first off, though, I'm going to say thank you very much for that little bit of information about the director. I was not aware of that big man. Oh, I think, so. I think, the th- I think, uh, for some reason, Robert Rodriguez has managed to to really rope in kind of bigger names in terms of directors, and you know, even with actors for a television show, it's been fairly stacked. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, as I say, I didn't know that's who that was. That's actually quite interesting. Every day's a school right, day with you, my friend. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, so as you say, um, we watched episode three, uh, The Mistress, and it picks up pretty much from where episode two leaves off. Um, in the early part of it, um, we see Seth on the phone to Carlos, who is this uh, sort of gangster character. Uh, Mexican gangster who was revealed in episode two to be a vampire mm-hmm. or a kind of snake demon slash vampire. We're not quite sure yeah. yet, but obviously you'd mentioned the snake thing in the last episode. Um, yeah. Him and uh, Seth are chatting about how, how how the hell he's going to get us out of Texas, kind of thing. Over this, don't worry about it. We're going to get you over the border, and they mention this place, El Rey which he puts across as this kind of paradise on earth place in Mexico where him and uh, Richie will be safe and they don't need to worry about it once they get there and everything will be fine. Um, And that's that. You then see Carlos meeting with uh, a couple of smugglers um, and they are talking about basically a consignment of something. We're not really quite sure what it is. These two smugglers then try and double-cross Carlos uh, and he very quickly just takes the two of them out, um, goes off vampire on their ass and fucking annihilates them. 
Um, we then cut back with the Gecko brothers still on the run. They've still got the bank clerk that we saw in episode two. She's still with them. Um, and they're holed up in a motel. And Seth makes a decision that he's going to go out to get them food. And rather ominously, he leaves her on her own uh, in the place with Richie. Um, quite a lot of the episode focuses around her and Richie. Um, his... I'm kind of loath to use the words hallucination because there's, they're obviously, in the first couple of episodes, we thought he was hallucinating, but he's not. Oh, there's more to it now, um, yeah. as we've become aware. They're kind of visions. They appear to be getting implanted in him as well. Yeah. Um, but they are getting worse and they are getting more frequent kind of thing. Um, and he goes through uh, quite a torrid time in the room with the character of Monica, the bank teller. Um she, you see her change. She becomes this kind of wanton, kind of seductress character on the bed, kind of inviting him over to have sex with and all this kind of stuff. Um, and he's speaking to her like that. And it, it, then it quite cleverly cuts to her and you see she's just sitting there fucking terrified because he's now saying, you know, do you want me to come over kind of thing, you know? And she's like, what are you talking about? I never said that. Um, yeah. But you also... Uh, and uh, when you're seeing it through Richie's vision, she refers to herself um, as a Spanish word. The name's escaped. Cordita, I think she said. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and um, he picks up on this and remembers it, and then he calls her it again, and you see the normal character of Monica reacting with horror to this. How do you know that name? How do you know that name? Uh, as the episode progresses, we find out that's a kind of pet name that her husband used for her during sex. And she can't yeah. understand how Richie knows this. And it's at these points that you start to realise that these visions are kind of more than just the hallucinations of a madman. There's obviously some kind of spiritual side to this. He, he, is, he can see and perceive things via these visions that have happened yeah. or are true kind of thing. So there's quite a lot of that. Um, and at points, she seems to be able to calm him down and you see quite a kind of a bond start to form between the two of them, um, which I'll come on to talk about that later on. But for for quite a part of it, she seems not to be able to control Richie, but to kind of soothe him and calm him down. Um, the other there's sort of three main threads, if you like, in the episode. The second of them is the preacher and her family. They're still on the road in their big RV, and they break down outside a bar. Um, the preacher goes into the bar to see if there's anybody can help him uh, with the van. And at this point, you see that characters' paths are starting to cross because we find out that in the bar, the the ranger is in the bar meeting with this yeah. professor who I'll come on to talk about. Um, and he's in there at the same time as the preacher. So the characters are starting to come together kind of geographically by this point. Um, the preacher gets told by a guy to try and fix the car. They can't get it going at the moment. They need to let it cool down. He basically goes in and gets drunk. Um, the daughter finds him like that and then she comes back and through a sort of series of events she finds out that there are sort of accusations that he might have been drunk in the accident that killed her mother Yeah. Um, and it, it's kind of left at that we, we find out more about it in the next episode which we're going to come on to talk about but um, that's the kind of main event that happens with them is she, she discovers this kind of hidden aspect of, of the accident that had killed her mum. 
Um, the other main parts, uh, the ranger um, meets up with a character who's a sort of professor of anthropology played by Jake Busey, son of the legendary Gary Busey. <laughs> we all know it. Does he have legendary status, Buzz? Gary Busey? Yeah. I'm about to hang up. Just take that back <laughs> and apologise to the fucking Busey. I apologise. I-, I pledge allegiance to the Busey. That's more like it, sir. Um, yeah, played by Jake Busey, who you and I had actually spoken about a while ago, um, and I yes. had never seen Jake Busey, and the minute he was on, I was like that. Is that a fucking Jake Busey guy that, <laughs> that Duncan was talking about? Because he looks a lot like Gary Busey. Yep, sure he does. He was. He's got his dad's. He's got his dad's teeth. <laughs> he certainly does. If anything, slightly whiter. <laughs> um, yeah. So the ranger has met up with him. Um, it, it's apparent that he has worked with him before, and this, this guy has been working on these um, sort of cartel serial killer murders that happened before the series. Um, yeah. But he's also he appears to be like some kind of professor of anthropology. He knows all about the sort of symbolism in, in Mexican uh, sort of religion and cults and so on. Um, and he shows him the knife uh, that he's been carrying about. Um, uh, he identifies this, uh, the symbol on it, as being to do with this snake goddess. And he's able to tell him, you know, if the cartel are using this, then they're basically a kind of blood cult rather than a cartel. Um, there's also a very amusing there's actually a, a few funny bits in this one um, one of which occurs in the final scene I'm going to talk about but uh, in the one when uh, the ranger meets the professor the, the professor tries to steal the knife it's obviously a very important historical artefact and he's wanting it and mm. the ranger's like yeah where's the knife yeah and he says yeah, yeah you gave it to me and he's motioning with his hand in front of his face you gave it to me you want me to take it to the to the university. <laughs> you want me to investigate it for you. And he's doing the Jedi mind trick out of fucking Star Wars. And then the little ranger guy just moves in and he's like, no, I don't. <laughs> and I, I, had a, I had a fair old chuckle to myself at that one. You can't beat a wee bit of Star Wars humour. Just for the fucking geek fanboys like myself. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. The other... Um, main storyline in this one uh, involves Seth when he leaves to go and get the food and he runs in to a female character who it turns out is his estranged wife Um, and it becomes apparent that they have had a sort of pre-existing plan she was involved in the planning of the bank job that we saw in episode 2 and he was to meet up with her and we're all going to escape to Mexico together Um, but the way shit's gone down Seth now doesn't want her to come but in fairness to him he doesn't want her to come for her own safety and he basically tries to pay her off because he just wants her just to take the money he has all set up that she can go cash these bearer bonds and live happily ever after Um, she is raging at the the prospect of this (laughs) they have a huge kind of fight Um, he basically tells her to fuck off she does, he goes back in and then this policeman arrives you see Seth's just about to go for his gun and then the wife standing next to the policeman with a gun to his head. Um, and that's where that one ends up. So there was a kind of interesting little backstory uh, to Seth there. 
there was a couple of little nods and funny bits and that that I liked. Um, one is the burger joint that he goes to is Big Kahuna Burger. Big which, Kahuna uh, Burger. is a wee nod to Pulp Fiction, if I'm correct. Yep. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. Uh, and my favourite bit in the whole thing, and it's another nod to the Busey, when he goes in, she says, Hi, welcome to Big Kahuna Burger. Can I interest you in the special Agent Utah meal? That's right, I picked up on that as well. Johnny yeah. fucking Utah. <laughs> So a wee point break nod there, and I totally loved that. So yeah, so that was pretty much it. The the one the sort of the, the finale bit at the end. Um, Seth makes his way back to the motel. He goes in. Rich is sitting there, looking a wee bit guilty. Where's the girl? Goes out of the room, and she has just been butchered on the bed. Um, it's similar to these other ones that we see. Rich having done her eyes have been taken out, and so on. So while. It appeared during the, the episode that she was kind of building a bond with Richie. It obviously got the better of him in the end, and he, and he takes yeah. her out kind of thing. Um, other little small bit, Carlos as well, That this consignment we find out, uh, Carlos appears to be smuggling women, basically, for other vampires. Uh, a group of vampires turn up, who I think might be these nine dark lords yeah. or something of the mines. Yep. Yeah. Yes, um, they kind of turn up and he said yeah I've got your product here basically and they open the van and it's a shower it looks like prostitutes or young girls or something like that yeah. one of these guys steps forward and you you see the fangs come down and then it kind of cuts out for there so that was episode 3 in a nutshell in terms of the, the plot um, not a bad episode um, yeah. I didn't quite enjoy it as much as the episode 2 I really liked episode 2 because I liked the bank story that was yeah. in that one um, uh, the stuff with Richie uh, it's okay it, it kind of bugs me when he starts flashing in and out these um, hallucinations, there was quite a cool bit when he's um, really in the depths of one of the hallucinations and you see a, like a snake coming out of him and then yeah. it, kinda, it goes down his throat and I wonder at this point is this him possessed by this the spirit of this snake goddess who we saw at yeah. the very start of the first episode kind of thing. That was quite uh-huh. interesting. Um, the stuff with Seth's wife, meh, kid, I might be done with that, to be honest. Yeah. And and to be honest, the, my least favourite part in the whole thing at the moment is the preacher and his family. They're kind of bugging the crap out of me. I remember what the film was like, obviously that'll get better as it goes on, but at the moment, yeah. they're kind of doing my nut in a bit. <laughs> but the, yeah, um, I did like the stuff with the professor and that. I thought that was quite cool, and the way he yeah. brings in this sort of Mexican mythology and that—that that was quite good. I quite enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I mean the thing that yeah, I've kind of the the, the Richie thing is uh, it's a strange one because obviously we like you say we went from initially watching them and thinking that because in, in the film in the From Dust Till Dawn film, you know, it's basically just part of the his psychotic nature, the way he justifies killing women is because he sees them through, you know, his visions as basically pleading to die uh-huh. and he gives them what he wants. So, I mean, that, that's how, and in this one, obviously, that's how it kind of starts off, but as it's travelled on now, we're now seeing that there seems, he seems to have some sort of mystical connection somehow to this, to this, uh, this goddess, this uh, 
high priestess or whatever. Yeah. Um, because it's her voice that's telling them each time. It's a female's voice saying, you that's know, right. set them, set them free, and all the rest. So she's she's manipulating them, and I believe, and uh, we'll, we can touch more on it when we talk about the next one because they kind of touch on it a wee bit more there. Is that the, the dagger itself is what seems to be wielding power, um, almost like the the ring and Lord of the Rings, and that's why you're. Your um your Jake Busey character um he he tries to you know he lifts it and it's not I, I think it's because that the the dagger is almost compelling people to lift it right um as as my take on it anyway it seems to be on some level possessed and I'm wondering if maybe she the goddess is through you know she has some power through the dagger and that's a stretch um I love the big Kahuna burger kind of reference very much like yourself and I picked up on the old uh, Johnny Utah burger um, which I thought was really cool Um, the the introduction of Jake Busey's character was really cool as well and obviously he's there to drive some of the mythology along so we've seen this clip of right at the very start of this woman being you know sacrificed by Mayans Um, but we've had no other mention of that Um, and then obviously we've heard of ritualistic killings uh, to do with this eye but we've not had any further explanation of that. And his character is basically to give us a little bit of the, you know, the the, the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is the stuff you kind of need to know yeah. moving forward. Do you think is, he'll come back into it? I think he's definitely coming back into it. A guy, an actor like that does not sign up for solely, you know, yeah. one episode and yeah. that is all. So I, I definitely think he'll, he'll come back into it. And it seems that on some level all these characters are connected somehow anyway mm-hmm. through bumping each other earlier or whatnot. The, the fact that we find out the the preacher um, has most likely been intoxicated um, and caused his wife's death, um, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, I think what I can't kind of get my head around at the moment is the casting of his daughter. Because in the original film, that's Juliette Lewis that yeah. plays. And Juliette Lewis is known as a, a fucking Hellraiser, as an actress yeah. here, or, and as a musician. And she has a bit of a... There's a confidence and swagger about that character um, that I just don't think that this the, the girl they've got portraying at the moment just seems a wee bit too squeaky clean. Yeah, she's quite demure. Yeah, and that's and obviously if they follow the pattern of the film in terms of television programme, she will break out her shell in that and hopefully her character will shine a bit more. Mm. But yeah, as, as, as I mean, what, the, what, what we can say comfortably about this television programme is basically they're taking each of the individual set pieces in the film and they're building a whole 45 minute yeah. episode around them all yeah. and that's I mean they've added certain bits in Big, Big Kahuna Burger in fact that whole sequence that whole is all new information so you know what I mean that's a whole brand new addition to the story we never had that bar we never had the preacher stopping off for drinks um we you know we never had the big kahuna burger scene with seth speaking to his girlfriend the only thing of that episode which is realistic in terms of what happened in the film is the sequence with the woman in the the bedroom and ultimately her dying yeah um so basically what they've done is they've taken the fact that you know seth goes out to get burgers and they've just elaborated on that part of the story to fill it in Mm -hmm. Um, so i didn't i I thought i thought it was pretty good um it moves the story on a bit not a whole hell of a lot but it has moved the story on a bit we have we finally met the the nine um as as we were getting told about them i think we can safely say that that is the um, surprise, surprise! They're all guys, which was I, I was expecting. I was expecting this woman 
character to make an appearance at some point, mm-hmm. but I reckon we probably won't see her until the Titty Twister. But yeah, um, yeah I, I thought it was. I thought it would. It was. A, it was a good episode. It, it's moving the story along nicely. And um, yeah, I, I, anything else you want to say before we we let the listeners listen to the the preview? of uh, episode number four before we chat about that? No, I don't think so. I think I'm going to, once we've chatted about uh, episode four, I'm going to come in with my general feelings at the end kind of thing. Cool, not a problem. Right, so we're going to jump right out. You're going to hear the quick 30-second uh, trailer for uh, what's coming up on episode number four. We'll be back to talk about it right after this. you got something that doesn't belong to you. you got to get it back to its rightful owner. Half the ticket takers on the Rio Grande are going to have copies of our mug shots. We need a way across. We need it right now. Hi. The infamous Gecko Brothers. Going to Mexico. Going to use us to cross. I make the plan. Everybody executes it. Or I execute you. Hey! Hi and welcome back. And you have just heard the, the teaser trailer for episode number four of the television adaptation of the film From Dust Till Dawn. Um, the episode number four uh, was called Let's Get Ramblin'. Um, the episode debuted in America on the 1st of April 2014 and made its way over to the UK on the 2nd of April. Um, it was directed by the man Robert Rodriguez, the, the head honcho. And um, the synopsis is the Gecko brothers attempt to leave the hotel and take the Fuller family hostage, but Freddy arrives and complicates the situation. So, um, I'll kick us off with this one if you're alright with that, Baz. Yeah, knock yourself out, big man. So this episode, like the previous one, pretty much kicks off right from where the previous one finished. Um, we are in the hotel room with Seth and Richie. We have a dead hostage on our hands. And for some reason, now we have uh, Richie being very much a cool character. And I think this plays into the fact, like you were saying in the previous the previous episode, that this like snake goes in into his body. And after that, he seems to have a different... Like his character appears to have almost had a like a change completely, and he's no longer as scat as he was. He seems to now be almost clairvoyant about things. Um, yeah, I hadn't actually noticed that, but you're right in thinking about it now. He, he has much camera in this episode. Ah, he doesn't have any freakouts at all um, in terms of anything, and uh, it links in. Like, there's a particular sequence later on where this kind of clairvoyant gift seems to have now appeared or manifested fully with them so we've got that we we jump back um in a flashback sequence with our, our cop uh, uh the cop gonzalez and um they bring back don johnson and a wee tear in my eye baz a wee tear in my eye when i saw the the the, the, the johnson back on screen it, it doesn't quite make up for killing him in the first fucking episode <laughs> but i'm glad to see him back on the screen don't yeah. that, mate. so um they jump back to when uh Gonzalez is like very, very early in his career. He's obviously wanting to be uh, one of these... Uh, what, what are they? The sheriff? Troopers? Texas or? Rangers. Texas Rangers, right. So, and they bust into this building and, you know, against... Don Johnson busts into the building very much against uh, his partner's advice. You know, it gets quite bloody and quite surreal very, very quickly. And he says that... He says to Don Johnson's mentor, says that he doesn't think he is suited for this line of work he doesn't think he can do it and i mean i mean is there anything better than a don johnson pep talk because i don't think there is nope. um he basically tells him no 
you you have the soul of a Texas Ranger in you, and I knew that from the moment that you said that you wanted to wait for backup and you wanted to follow procedure, and you you know you, you know he kind of basically tells you you know you were born to do this, uh, which also kind of serves up to this reason of how he's taken it so personal that Don Johnson's died. Um, it also feeds into an extent. You know, the thing about him wanting to make his uh, his child's godparent and all the rest. You know, why he was so close to him. He's more than just a partner. He is his mentor. You know, he he is who he looked up to. And then we jump to the fact that he's still trying to, back in present, he's still trying to track down the Gecko Brothers. And his boss phones him up a bit irate because they found the body of that young lad who got killed by the, the snake dude a while yep, ago. Uh, right. They found his body and... Um, Basically, they phone him up. The, the guy's not happy that Gonzalez is off doing his own his own investigation and whatnot. And then he obviously says to him, you know, he made me swear to to track him down and kill him, you know, and you know, I, 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 that's what I'll do. And th- there seems to be this kind of, and you see this a lot in films. And I've never obviously been a police officer or anything, but there seems to be this kind of unwritten code thing that if your partner asks you to do something, you do it. Especially as a dying wish. So it kind of adds to the intensity of his character. And he manages to track down the the girl at Big Kahuna Burger. Um, and, you know, he confronts her. And Meanwhile, <laughs> we have the, the the preacher's family arriving at the hotel. Um, the daughter's booked them in there. So Kate's got them all set up. And um, we see Seth clocking the fact says basically at his wit's end because he doesn't know how they're going to cross the border and he then sees the RV which is directly out of the, the film you know that scene where he stops in front of it and just stares in um, is that in the film is it? yeah it's directly right. from the film so there's a couple of things directly from the film in this and, and including a change of dialogue between one of the characters which kind of um, which kind of threw me off a wee bit, but so he's basically he's seen that he knows what he wants to do. They set up the the whole sequence where um, the daughter is, and, and in this one they've they've added a wee bit because in the original film the daughter doesn't leave the room, but she's dressed in her bikini, and then Seth and Richie come in and basically control the situation. And this one the daughter goes away to the the swimming pool. Um, Seth and Richie come in, obviously threatening the preacher and his son. Seth at first is going to go and get the daughter at the pool but then he has this flashback of what happened to the last person left with Richie in a hotel room which would be our <laughs> former hostage he thinks better of that so he sends her he sends him sorry he sends Richie down to get her at the swimming pool and obviously makes that comment about you, you know you don't talk to her you don't touch her you just bring her back up here um, so Richie goes away to do that and this is where the, this kind of I was talking about the clairvoyant thing this is where this kicks in because it, at first, I thought she was, he was having one of his visions where they ask him for something and, you know, that's not what's really happened. But in the case of this one, she actually does ask him for a cigarette and they start up a bit of rapport and Richie starts to be able to tell things about her. Um, the fact that she's, you know, there's a problem with her dad, you know, it's a deep problem. And um, we get this flashback of the, the preacher as well during this episode um, of him blessing his wife and saying to his daughter that it's migraines. And um, obviously, when Richie finally touches the girl, we get this complete, like, clairvoyant thing of him basically saying, you know, it wasn't migraines that she had, it was something worse. Um, So he now apparently has this gift 
which is now fully manifested. Um, she goes back up to the room. She's taken hostage. Meanwhile, uh, Gonzalez has made his way to the the hotel or motel, and he's starting to work his way around there with some some of the local sheriffs, <clears throat> and we're setting things up for the their great escape basically. So we have um, Richie and Seth having this argument because. You know, Richie says we need to park the RV round the back, and Seth's like, "We're not parking the fucking RV round the back." And by the way, this episode specifically with Seth, that and I know I've said this before, the guy that they've casted with him is so fucking like George Clooney. Yeah. It's unbelievable. This guy has like seriously, if Hollywood is struggling to think of potential character, you know, potential actors that can fill the void when George Clooney stops doing that, this guy can do it. <laughs> really, he is so fucking. It's un. It's so uncanny that when he's delivering these, if you close your eyes and you listen to the dialogue being delivered, he is George Clooney. It's fucking freaky. So it really is, man. It throws me off. Um, genius casting. So, um, meanwhile, uh, our our our, sheriff, our Texas Ranger, sorry, has still got this knife and. W- he starts to see things, in particular, one of the perps that died in this kind of flashback sequence earlier, manifests as a ghost, and this ghost is basically telling him, you know, you must return the dagger to its rightful owner, um, which is all a bit surreal, and I didn't, and I, 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 that's one of my gripes, and we're going to come to this later on for the episode, uh, that they've shoehorned this bit of kind of supernatural thing in here, I don't necessarily think it works, but... Um, so everything's kicking off. Uh, Richie makes his way outside with Scott, and he delivers this line about um, the bullet leaving the gun. Uh, you know, I've I've got uh, this you know, gun, and you know, I press the trigger, and the bullet yeah, goes where I want to point to who you want to die. Yeah, that originally that piece of dialogue is done by Seth in the film. And this kind of threw me, because I was watching that, I was like, Richie never fucking said that in the movie. That's like almost word for word from a sequence um, in the movie that Seth says that. And it, it was a wee bit weird coming from Richie's character, mm. who's completely zen, but all of a sudden becomes quite hostile towards a kid, which yeah. I didn't think really matched up. And they move the RV around the back, and then we find out why he's moved the RV around the back, because after a tussle... With, with cops because they have to basically have a shootout to get out of there um, they fall off and instead of falling to the ground and potentially killing themselves from the height they fall on top of the RV which Richie has moved so he's oh. obviously foreseen this um, and that's why they've moved there but before that the, this is the bit that kind of threw me um, uh, we have Gonzalez in the room about to bust down and he gets this image of this perp again that's dead appearing and he kills him with a knife um, yeah, he tries he's, shooting him and that doesn't work and then yeah. he pulls the knife and this knife somehow kills him and once again I'm not too sure why the, I, I mean this obviously indicates that the knife has some sort of power yeah um, some sort of mystical power yeah and obviously the person that wields the knife what the, once again I'm getting loads of Lord of the Rings references here you know this knife has power it wants to be returned to its right owner um, you know the, yeah. when, when you have the knife it corrupts you Um so all these sort of things are coming out in this episode and we are left at the end of this episode with, you know, them heading off in the RV and they're going to be heading to the border, which I'm assuming is going to be the next episode is how they get across the border, which um, I can't see them making a whole episode out of that because that in the film is literally like a three minute scene. Yeah. Um, 
So I really can't. I I I hope. I'm praying, fingers crossed, at the end of our next episode, we're at least pulling up to the titty twister, because if if we can start talking about what we think works and doesn't work, I mean, have I missed anything, or is that pretty much um, anything worth noting? No, there's there's the gun fight, but yeah, it's a it's a fairly kind of lengthy bit, and it, and it it's it, it's probably the most action we've had in a while. Yes, definitely. It's, it's the gun fight, but it did include. One of the worst stunts I've seen in many a year. Um, I don't know if you picked up on it, but basically as they kind of shoot their way out, um, the, the the rangers appeared. He's yeah. shooting them. Two sheriffs have sort of rendezvoused with him. They come up behind them. Yeah. They get taken. Richie takes them out from behind. Um, and then... Another one appears, and I think it's Seth that yeah, shoots him. Yeah, the, next the guy to some railings, and he falls. Yeah, but he doesn't. He kind of jumps. That's it, right. <laughs> it was terrible. I could have fallen off that balcony more realistically than that stunt man did. Or what about what about when uh, uh, what about when um, Gonzalez appears at the big Kahuna Burger, and uh, <laughs> he's talking to the cop outside there, and he refers to the woman as a tall drink of water. Yeah, and I was like, ah, "Fuck off!" No police officer who's pinned down who has his buddy with a cop at the back of his head refers to the person that's doing it as you know, that cool, that cool drink of water. I was like, "Fuck off!" You like, that bitch has my partner, fucking killer. So, <clears throat> which was a bit cheesy as well, but yeah, I, yeah, that that was a particularly bad stunt. Um, I did notice that as well. And every now and again, I think this television program shows you that it is still a television program. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, right, some of the things that, right, I, I, I'll kick us off and then you can give us an overview of what basically you were saying earlier on about yeah. what you think is working and not working. Right, to me, we're four episodes in now and we've only got to the stage, they're not even crossed the border, so mm-hmm. the, the the pacing of the series thus far is kind of breaking my tits. Yeah. Um, I think we should be a lot, I don't know how many episodes are in this this thing, but to me, we should be a lot further along. Um, and I quite like how they've taken some liberties with the programme and pushed it out. I'm quite liking the fact that we've dropped the kind of the Richie level of you know, paranoia and stuff like that and he seems a bit more zen, but at the same time, <clears throat> that's completely against the grain of what Richie was in the film, so obviously they're trying to beef that section out. I'm not too sure about the knife thing, especially the fact that the cop could see a ghost. Um... Because, you know, if... Right, that cop's now seen a ghost and fought and tangled with a ghost mm. um, with a knife. So, anything kind of supernatural that now comes up in this, this series, that cop can no longer rebel against that because yeah, he's seen he's a got fucking to, ghost. he's got to take it in his stride, yeah, because he killed a ghost with a knife. Exactly. And so, it disappeared I mean, in a puff of smoke. Exactly. So, I mean, I think they've played that far too early with the cop, and I don't mm. know... As soon as that cop rebels against anything in the future, it's going to it's going to cause me complications with it. Um, <laughs> as I'm, I'm going to I'm going to be sitting there saying, "No, that's no fucking right." So we've we've got that. Um, the obviously we're hinted at the fact that the the preacher's wife was dying. I think mm-hmm. it's not migraines. Well, I my theory. Can I tell you my theory on Go that? Go for it. Just Go while you're it. talking about it. I began to wonder if she had Alzheimer's. All right. Because they talk about, we discover that the preacher was, uh, 
breathalyzing everything on the scene and then blood tested after it and and his his uh, blood alcohol was below the legal level so he wasn't drunk yeah um but it's then revealed that he indicates that there was a fight yeah with his wife in the car and there's something he says i can't remember exactly what it was but there was something he said while he was praying over the mother in the bed that kind of made me think i wonder if she's got alzheimer's and this is what happened in the car she freaked right. out in the car and attacked him and this is what caused him to crash the car Ah, because I was wondering, I was wondering, my, my, my theory, and I think, or actually your sound's more plausible than mine when I think about <laughs> it, but my, my theory was that it wasn't him that had had, you know, it wasn't him that was driving, it was her that was driving. Mm. I, th- I thought that maybe she had some sort of terminal illness and decided to finish it, and um, she'd been that and he's taken the fall for it because, you know, being being of their faith that they are, you're not allowed to commit suicide. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's what I... That's what I thought, but your sim's a bit more plausible. We'll need to hopefully they flesh that. I don't really want to be spending like the next four or five episodes getting these wee flashbacks to fill that out. They really need to finish that part of the story and move it on because you're right. The preacher is an integral character and he's lost his faith. And you know we know from watching the film he will eventually regain his faith at mm. just in time to 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 do what he needs to do for them in the tech twister. But I think. We d- I don't want three episodes, four episodes of small snippets try to fill that in. I think we, sh- we need to get that bit done and focus on the fact there's big fucking vampires, there's a cop chasing after them, and we're heading over the border. So that that, that to me is, you know, and I see why they're doing it. They're trying to put forward the fact that uh, Robert Patrick's character is a broken man. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has lost his faith, and, you know, he can't, he can't quite verbalise it to his family yet how broken he is because he's still trying to be strong for them but he's a deeply flawed character so yeah I mean that's another niggle my, my, my biggest gripe thus far four episodes in is just the fact that it's taken so damn long to get somewhere um, and I would like to hopefully uh, I'm hoping things are going to pick up in the next couple of episodes and we're actually going to start to get some real kind of movement behind the series you were saying that you had a like something you want to say just generally as like an overview yeah I just it's kind of what you were saying, Duncan. I mean, we're four episodes into it now. And the thing that... While I'm enjoying it, it's just not grabbed me. Yeah. And, I, and I'm I'm kind of... What's kind of in the back of my head is, if Duncan wasn't watching this and we weren't doing this for the podcast, how much longer would I stick with this? Yeah. It, the pacing is quite slow. Yeah. But then again, on the other hand, they're trying to build a backstory, you know, uh-huh. they're trying to flesh it out a bit, and I can appreciate that. I think what is getting me is it, there's the whole tar, there was the whole Tarantino thing with the first film. Obviously, yes. he was heavily involved with the first film. Now, I know you're a you're a Tarantino fanatic. Yeah, I I quite like Tarantino. I I don't like all of his films, uh-huh. and these extended periods of dialogue in some of them. It just it kind of bores me and I find myself losing interest and I'm starting to find this like Tarantino made a TV series yeah do you know what I mean there's just all the little side bits that don't necessarily have a lot to do with anything but really get fucking dragged out like yeah. what you're saying about the preacher and his family and that the bit with the wife seemed to be a bit gratuitous it's just I don't know they need to do something to to fucking make me sit up and go, that was amazing. 
Do you know what I mean? Because even the vampire bits so far have been pretty fucking minimal and low key. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That even they've not really. I was like, oh my god, none of that yet. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I'm kind of in the same boat as you, but maybe a little bit more cheesed off with it, I think than you are but for similar reasons yeah I think I, I mean I'd said to my I said to my wife earlier on when we were watching it that this television programme hasn't the, the opening episode I really enjoyed it but since then it, I, I feel it's treading water big time yeah um, and I mean I've got I watched so much stuff that I mean the completionist in me would probably still watch the entire series but I wouldn't be watching it week on week I'd probably just wait for it to finish and then blitz it all in a winner so yeah possibly um, and that's 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 what I do with television programs that I start to lose an interest in I wait for them to finish and then I watch them all maybe in like a day or something like that I sit down watch them all and that's I'm done I don't need to go back to them if they didn't turn out as good as I thought they were going to be so yeah I'm, it's still not I'm with you on this one it's still not done enough at the moment to really pull me in, um, I'm hoping they've they've certainly set up an, enough of a mythology now where these these nine fucking dark lords, this guy that can shapeshift who's a complete fucking badass, um, this knife which seems to be able to control people, um, the the professor that seems to know a wee bit. I mean, there's plenty in here that should be pulling my attention deeper into the the story. Yeah. Um, it's not quite hitting it yet and basically like I say it needs to do something big in the next two we need to get to the titty twister that's mm-hmm. what we we need to be there we need to be there in the next episode and if we don't do it there I think you'll probably find me and you will be bitching a hell of a lot in the next episode yeah yeah I wouldn't disagree with that actually I yeah. wouldn't disagree so bringing that to uh, a conclusion hopefully you guys are, are checking these these episodes out um, what did you think of them if you have been watching them drop a drop a, a, a note on the Facebook page um, hopefully you're following the podcast under the stairs on the Facebook page well, I'd be I'd actually be interested to hear what some of the listeners are thinking on this show actually um, because Definitely. you're the only other person I know that's watching this. Yeah. <laughs> so it's only ever you and I that talk about it. I would be quite interested to hear what other folk are making of this actually. There you go. The Baz has has put out a plea, a call to arms for talk all Talk to uh, me. <laughs> let them know what you think. <laughs> um but yeah, you should be checking us out on the Facebook page. Uh, go to Facebook, type in the search bar podcast under the stairs, come over and get involved with the conversation. So we're gonna jump right out just now. We're gonna compose ourselves, have a stiff brandy, um, and when we return, it's Baz V Horror time. Yep, that's right, Baz V Horror. Episode number seven. We wanted Baz to tackle found footage, and you sadistic bastards out there are forced us both to sit through Cannibal Holocaust, it's not going to be pretty, it's going to be pretty fucking horrible, um, and Baz, I think we need a drink before we start talking about this. Dirty, dirty <laughs> bastards. <laughs> but yeah, so what we're going to do is we're going to jump out, you're going to hear a couple of bits and bobs, you're also going to hear the trailer for Cannibal Holocaust, you're going to hear Baz V Horror promo, uh, we love that promo, and then when we jump back in we're going to be discussing the film, so we will speak to you right after this In a world gone mad, one man will step up to the plate. A horror novice who wants to take on all that the horror genre can throw at him. Will he be triumphant in this eternal battle against the horror genre? 
will win? Who will be triumphant? Who can conquer horror? I ask you, who wins in Baz v Horror? Without a word of a lie, and I'm genuinely not making this up, and I've never done this in my life, I just went, SHIT! We really screwed ourselves this time. Trying to, trying to stay there for the last shot. I don't even know where we are now. But I know they, I know they, uh, they followed us and we lost everything trying to escape. We're screwed, we're trapped. Watch it, Alan. I'm shooting. Oh, good lord. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's horrible. I can't understand the reason for such cruelty. You have just heard the funky Baz V Horror promo and the trailer for Cannibal Holocaust. So, obviously what we did was we decided that the scores as they stand as of this moment, because we don't know what Baz is going to say, well I kind of have an idea of what Baz is going to say, but um, I think everyone does as well. Uh, but yeah, as, as it stands just now, the score is Baz 4 Horror 2. And it made me have to sit down and think about what I could do to basically ump the ante here and you know try and bring back the, the points for horror. And I was like that, Baz, two points against them. The ones that went for horror were on found footage. Yep. So I put forward found footage. Um, and you very kind people out there suggested nine film titles, which we then put in our poll. And the resounding winner was Cannibal Holocaust. Um, Cannibal Holocaust infamously is considered the original first found footage film. So, let me give you some information on the film before we get Baz to talk about his experience. So, Cannibal Holocaust came out in 1980. Holy shit. Um, The year before I was born. And um, it was directed by Ruggiero Diodato. It was written by Jean-Franco Clerky. Um, I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it. He sounds like <laughs> a shite Chelsea player, doesn't he? <laughs> I'm going to just go out and record here. There's a lot of Italian names here. So expect <laughs> it severely butchered by my uncouth Scottish tongue. Um, Robert Kerman plays Harold. Um, Francesca Chiardi plays Faye. Perry Perkinen plays Jack Anders. Lucia Barbareschi plays Mark, 
Salvatore Basile plays Chaco. Um, Ricardo, f- somebody, plays Philippe. Carol Gabriel York plays Alan. Paolo Pialo, <laughs> I think that's how you pronounce his name, plays the chief and New York executive. Um, Leonalo, somebody, plays another executive. And um, that's all I'm going into here. The synopsis for the film, a New York University professor returns from a rescue mission to the Amazon rainforest with the footage shot by a lost team of documentarians who are making a film about the area's local cannibal tribes. So, Baz. Yep. My man, you watched this. You, You took one for the team, even though I said on the previous show... I'd seen this film once before and I really didn't want to go back and ever watch this fucking film again. But our very, very kind, learned uh, listeners, uh, that's not what we'll be calling them after the show's finished, um, picked Cannibal Holocaust and you watched it today. Go for it, my man. Yep. Um, Oh, God. I I really don't know where to start with this one. I really, really don't. Um... Uh, first off, a big thank you to Gil Rokatansky from the Bodacious Horror <laughs> Podcast for suggesting this fucking abomination. <laughs> um, in fairness to Gil, um, and, a, and a, I think he had a pang of conscience and in solidarity, he actually watched it at the same time as me today. He did. Um, and there, there was quite a bit of banter on the Twitter. Um, as I say, I watched it this morning. Um, we did the live Twitter updates. Um Gil was feeding into that a lot as well. Um, as was uh, one of our followers, uh, Jamie Wilson. Jay, I was getting a lot of banter with Jamie. The, the Twitter thing worked excellent today, actually. There was a lot of interaction. Um, so that was a th- big thumbs up to everybody that got involved with that. Um, my first mistake, uh, as mentioned earlier, my wife and I had friends round last night. <laughs> Things got a little bit whiskey. Um <laughs> And I, I was slightly hungover when I watched this. Now, I really should have known better because I was worried about found footage. As you say, um, the two films that did me over so far were both found footage. The first one was Wreck, and then the second one was the Poughkeepsie tapes. My fear of found footage comes from an aborted attempt to watch the Blair Witch Project when it came to the cinema in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of hype about the Blair Witch in Britain before it came here, because it had been out in America quite a long time before it got released over here in the cinema. And I remember hearing news articles about this film that had been recorded for next to nothing, and there was hardly anybody did it, and they filmed it on a, a handicam thing, you know, in the woods. And it just, the whole thing kind of caught my interest. So me and it was an ex-girlfriend or something at the time went to see it on a Saturday night in the cinema in Glasgow, and we lasted 20 minutes. Uh, and I had to leave. I had a blinding headache yeah. um, caused by the motion sickness. The girl I was with, she actually threw up in the toilet when we got out. Her motion sickness was so bad. And I'm always very wary of found footage because of that, because of this you know, jerky motion and so on. It yeah. seems to really affect me quite well, badly. I, makes me I very told cautious. you... Yeah, I told you I had a very similar experience with Blair Witch in that yeah. I actually passed out in the cinema, but I went back in and watched the rest of it because I thought I'd spent fucking... I was I was still a student at the time and I'd spent like about £10 all in all at the cinema and I was like, ah, I'd be fucking watching this film if it kills me. 
And I went, I went back and then saw it. And um, I think it's a film you need to go back and watch. Certainly, um, now yeah. that you're finding a, because I, I do think a lot. There's a lot of people that fucking now go back and say, "Oh, Blair Witch Project wasn't that bad," and all the rest. That's not what was getting said at the time. Everyone yeah. fucking had a, a majority of people anyway had a universal opinion that that film was a really fucking good one. And I yeah. still stick by what I said about it then. So yeah, so yeah, oh. so uh, I was for that reason I was wary about found footage, and I should have known better than attempt it when I'm not feeling very well. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? So then th- this, I, I was following the, the suggestions, and, and it became quite clear that this cannibal Holocaust one was going to win. And there was a lot of banter on the Facebook page about it, and folk going on about all these disturbing scenes. And I, I basically anybody that I spoke to immediately said, "Oh." You know, that had seen it immediately went, oh, I've seen it, but I'm never watching it again. Um, my mate Big Gay here said the exact same thing, and he made this comment about a turtle, which we'll come on to talk about Yeah, shortly. yeah, yeah. Um, so I was very apprehensive about this film. Um, it, it became very apparent that there is something a little bit special about this. It's not a run-of-the-mill film. So I settled down this morning. I specifically told my wife not to come anywhere near it. She's terrible with horror films and gore yeah. and stuff like that. Um, so I made sure she was you know, up the stairs out the way. I didn't want her seeing any of this. I'd settled down. And the, the first thing that struck me um, is it's not found footage in the, in the way that I'm used to found footage, in which basically the whole thing yes. is the discovered tapes. They don't really come into play till well after halfway through it. Yeah. Um, it starts off like a normal film. Um, as you say, there's this anthropology professor. He travels to the Amazon to see if he can find this documentary team that went missing. Um, he's accompanied by a fucking kick-ass guide who I loved. He was, he was <laughs> amazing, man. He was just totally fucking bonkers, top off and all that in the middle of the jungle. Everywhere with a gun, shooting the gun for the hip. He was a legend. He was the only good thing in this fucking film. <laughs> um... As you say, it, it was released in 1980. It, it's it's very dated looking. The, the acting is pretty bad. There, there's yeah. no getting around that. There are no good acting scenes in this. It's pretty bad. Um, and the dubbing is horrendous. <laughs> I, I don't normally pick up on that with these things. I'm not a film geek or a techie geek. Stuff like that normally just breezes by me until somebody points it out. But no, it's shocking. So yeah, so it starts off, as I say, it's, it's like a normal film. They travel out of the jungle, they find some of the tribes and that um, there. And it, it's okay. There, there's nothing bad at that point. There is a scene with a muskrat. Now, there was a lot of discussion. Uh, I, I was speaking to you and also the uh, Gil and Roscoe from the Bodacious Horror podcast. Yeah. Because there are varying versions of this film. Because yes. of some of the stuff that was in it, it's been banned at various times, bits that have been taken out. There's a new director's cut, which is quite different, apparently. Um, but it appears that the original one is practically impossible to get a hold of now. Yeah, yeah. Um, Roscoe uh, pointed me in the direction of the one that he thought was going to be the best that I could get my hands on. Um, uh, but the, it's the shameless version you've got, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's shameless. the shameless one, yeah. Um, the, the, apparently there are something like 13 or 14 seconds, even in that version, that were taken out by the director. And what you see instead is other people's reactions, you know, yeah. other characters on screen. You see them reacting to what happens off screen, apparently in the original 
you saw what happened. And the first one of these is a scene with a muskrat when it's killed. Which is in my version. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, My bootleg version has it. Yeah. Basically, it cuts away. When you look back, he's killed this thing and basically throws its innards at this wee cannibal guy who then proceeds to eat them. But yeah, I mean, I was okay with that. We get through that all right. Um, I think probably the, the, the first bit that got me, there's a fairly unsavoury rape scene um, where they're watching two tribes, well, a tribesman and a woman, um, and apparently it becomes apparent she's been cheating on her husband or something in the village, and yeah. she's raped with a rock and so on. It, it was very unpleasant to watch. Mm-hmm. Um not something I was relishing back to see again. And I think that was probably the first bit I was like, oh, that's pretty fucking uncool. Do you know what I mean? Um, they, this part of the travel, and they find this um, uh, tribe. They, there's a few varying scenes there. But the tribes people are absolutely fucking bonkers. They're totally mental. But yeah. apparently this was actually filmed using real Amazonian tribes people. Yes, that's correct, yeah. Um, he then discovers this kind of totem that's been made basically of the bones of these uh, missing documentary makers and there's a camera there and he manages to get the, these tribes people to agree to release this camera to him yeah and he takes it back to america and it's at that point you know he, he's talking to television people and that and convincing them you know you need to see what's on this and this is where the found footage stuff starts to come in um it's not the worst found footage because it's not done on like wee handy cams and stuff like that so it's, yeah. it is a bit jerky at points um but that's when shit really starts to go downhill you see these four fairly unsavory documentary makers they're very brash at the start and all that it becomes apparent they're not very nice people well, we find out that their previous they they've done they've done previous documentaries and yes. one specifically um, was to do with um, wasn't it to do with the Jews or something like that? It, it was no, it, it was kind of executions. There seemed to be scenes from uh, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia and right, stuff right, like that. Yeah. You saw folk being executed, and the, the the you then find out afterwards that that was all staged yeah, just for the uh-huh. production. So these yeah. these these are these people are not. Your these are not your David Attenborough type That's people right, yeah. going out and actually making legitimate, even though there's a question about what he does, but um, legitimate, you know, realistic portrayals of what they see out there. These people are not removed from setting stages up. Yeah, that's right. But it's what goes on that's not... I mean, you'd not expect them at all when you watch it, but continue, sorry, Baz. Yeah, no, no, not at all. Um, Yeah, so basically then it's them filming their journey into the jungle, coming across various tribes. Um, Then we we have the scene with the turtle, which is awful. It's the one that I told you, I told you as well. Yeah. When that kicks in, that uh, is one of the most unpleasant things I've ever seen, yeah. ever on my telly. It's fucking it, it horrible. Was truly, truly awful. They basically capture this large uh, aquatic turtle, um, and the thing is huge. They capture it in the river, they drag it out, and then proceed to kind of butcher it. Um, and it's very apparent that this thing is alive. Yes. You know, this wasn't fake. They killed this thing on screen. They, they take its head off at first. And that, like, oh, God, right, there's fucking no need for that. Do you know what I mean? 
<laughs> but then they they start hacking its legs off, and you can see the legs moving. This thing obviously is fucked. It's dead, but it, its body's still moving, and it's trying to pull its legs. It it was really quite harrowing. Yeah. Then they crack through the kind of underneath of it and pull it open, and there's just some really gratuitous scenes where they are dragging its innards out and yeah. kind of reveling in this. Gratuitous is the word that just kept going round and round and round in my head, and I tweeted about it. It was a horrible scene, yeah, and done for no other reason than just total shock factor. Do you know what I mean? It, it was fucking appalling. It really was. It yeah. was appalling. Um, how those people fucking could live with themselves doing that is just fucking beyond me. Um, yeah. I'd like to talk uh, after we've gone through the film. I think we'll talk about the, the people that were involved in it and stuff like that because I think there's a lot I don't know about it, you know. Yeah. Um, th- this continues. Um, they then come across uh, various villages and stuff like that and they then start tormenting these tribes people in some very horrible, fucking cruel ways. Obviously, they've got guns. These tribes people have never seen white people before, you know, people from the outside world. Um, they round them up into uh, huts and they're setting fire to the huts and, you know, and they kind of go in this descent almost into madness. Yeah. Um, and it, it's really quite disturbing to watch because what kept going through my head was these people are tribes people. Yes. They are probably very terrified of what's happening here, even though they know that people are making a film. Yeah. They were probably scared utterly shitless. Do you know what I mean? Um, there are a number of rape scenes in this film, yes. which I kind of wasn't expecting. No, it's about cannibals. It'll just be them eating everybody. There's a, yeah, there's a few rape scenes, including these documentary makers chasing this young girl um, and raping her on camera. The, the female documentary maker gets kind of angry about this and makes a half-arsed attempt to stop them. I mean, she doesn't go full out to stop it. Yeah. Um, and then shortly after that, we see this uh, woman impaled basically through her kind of genitals and up through her mouth on this pole. Yeah. And it was horrifying looking. Absolutely horrifying. And I'm I'm kind of thinking, some of the effects in this have been fucking shit. This looks real. Yeah. And in all honesty, I don't know if it was real or not. I really mm-hmm. fucking don't. I wouldn't be that surprised if it was. I've got to say. Because it was brilliantly executed if that was an effect. Yeah. Um, it's awful to look at. And they kind of dwell on it. And some of them are kind of grinning about it. And it's just very, very unpleasant. At this point, I really I started to feel hellish because the jiggling camera and that started to come in. And it was like the perfect storm. Yeah. While while I was hungover this morning, I, I wasn't nauseous feeling or anything like that. I just felt a bit crap because I had too much to drink last night. This jiggling brought on the nausea, and then what you're seeing on screen, it just all culminated in, I'm like that, I think, I, I could be sick here. Now, I wasn't going to be sick because of what I was watching. It's not that bad that it would make you involuntarily vomit. Yeah. It just, the overall effect of everything coming together... I felt absolutely horrendous. I mean, my wife came by at one point and she's like, why, why don't you just turn it off? Yeah. I was like, there's, there's only 10 minutes to go. I, I just need to fucking 
keep going but I had to stop at five minutes to go because I, I felt so unwell I thought I was going to be sick and I had to go and sit in the toilet for a while mm-hmm. um, and that's why I think folk that were following on Twitter kind of wondered what happened because I just stopped talking and it was at the end yeah um, basically the they're committing these fucking various atrocities against these cannibal people the cannibal people turn on them and sort of start taking them down one by one in a very kind of concentrated 10 minute spree it's not like deliverance where they're whittled down one by one trying to escape yeah, yeah. they basically just come at them one guy the, the blonde kind of porn star looking guy gets taken out with a spear and then you see the these cannibals just descending on him there is a another horrible scene where he's castrated yeah, yeah. and again I'm looking at it going like that how the fuck did they do that yeah. It's 1980, there was no CGI. Mm-hmm. And they hacked this guy's penis off on screen. Yeah. As you know, he's dead, but it was awful. They, um, you know, they turned their chase and some of the others through the, the, the jungle. They, they capture the, the, the girl, and there is a horrific scene where she's raped as well before yeah. being beaten to death. Um, it's, it's fucking visceral and. It, none of this is scary. It's not a scary film, but mm-hmm. it is gut wrenching. Yeah, absolutely gut wrenching and nauseating. And the lines between what's actually happening and what is staged for this film—it's not even that they're blurred. They are not there. It is fucking impossible to tell. Yeah, with the vast majority of this film, what is real and what is not. And as I say, I know we're going to come out and talk about it in a wee while. There was an awful lot of stuff, particularly the violence directed towards animals in this film, yes. was done. I mean, there, there's a bit, they, they pin down a little monkey and they take its head off with a, a kind of machete blade. Yeah. And it was done. And there is no, get you, it, it's there. The monkey's screaming and squealing and then bang. And you know fine well they, they just cut that monkey's head off on mm. the screen. And so you're unsure as to what level of violence was propagated against the actual people in this film as well. Like yeah. I say, the lines aren't blurred. They are just not there in this film. It, mm-hmm. It's fucking appalling. Um, the last five minutes, I kind of managed to get myself out of the toilet and back through and stuck it on. I'm not going to lie, for a lot of the last ten minutes, I wasn't really watching it. Yeah, I was looking at the ground. I was getting kind of waves of nausea and heat because I was hungover and I was starting to feel ill and I was kind of, my mouth kept getting dry, I was having to drink water. A lot of the time I was kind of looking away from the screen, I could hear everything that was going on and then I would look back. The, the bits where they are hunting them down, obviously they're running with this camera and the motion sickness just went off the charts at this point. Completely off the charts, I felt fucking horrendous. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the end of it, I just, I couldn't wait for it to finish. I was looking at the little clock my DVD player to see how long was left. And my last couple of tweets were, that's the worst thing I've ever seen, you know, and I'm off for a lie down. I'll talk to you yeah. later. And I genuinely did. I had to go up the stairs and lie down. I felt horrendously ill. Um, it's just such a... In the way that the Poughkeepsie Tapes is a feel-bad film, there is... The Poughkeepsie Tapes is a great film. I really love that film. It's fucking terrifying. And there's yeah. no... I mean, I said when we talked about that, there's no feel-good bit in it. Nobody wins. It's, it's awful. It leaves you feeling hellish. But I love that effect that it had on me. This is like that, but I can't find anything good to say about this film. Mm-hmm. This 
film, I think it's been banned and censored for being it, it, quite right, quite right, it fucking deserves it. This is an appalling fucking piece of filmmaking in every fucking sense of the word. It really is. I will never watch this film again. Never as long as I live. Um, and I did go up and I had to go to sleep for a while and, that, and I felt better once the motion sickness wore off and that. I came back downstairs and I sent a couple of tweets out to the guys, Jamie and Gil and that, that had been following me on it. Um, and there was some good banter going then. Um, I, felt, I felt kind of bad because I felt like I just abandoned it and walked away. I did get to the end, but it wasn't easy fucking getting there. Yeah, um, yeah. Not going to lie. Um, yeah, that that was... That's my feelings on fucking Cannibal Holocaust. If I ever see it again, it will be with a gun in my head. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, I don't even know what I'm going to do with that fucking copy. In, in all honesty, I bought the... I the told you, but I... Yeah, I know, I know, mate. And the reason is, I do not want my daughter ever... Roman. She's getting older now. She quite yeah. likes some horror films and stuff like that, you know, but she's still at an age where she wouldn't ever go and watch one of my films without asking. Yeah. But... You know, my daughter, she's going to be 12 in July. It's not going to be long before, you know, you're out. She's in the house on her own. She's sneaking to watch a DVD. I would never, ever want her to see that. I yeah. really, really wouldn't. Um, so I don't know what to fucking do about that. Um, hey, Jamie Wilson was looking for a copy. If you're listening, Jamie, Baz will sell you his copy. <laughs> we'll see. It's a, it's a possibility. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it was... It's just, it's just an awful, awful film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I said to you, I saw this film just after it was banned for, for a long time. And I'm I, I'm almost 100% certain that this film got released about the same time as in, like, the ban was lifted. About the same time as films like Cannibal Ferox, um, I Spit in Your Grave, and things like that were getting, their, were getting a chance to finally make their way to home video again. Um, this film was famously part of the Video Nasties. Wasn't the most notorious Video Nasty that would be Evil Dead, but Evil Dead's a party in comparison to this film. Um, and I remember when it came out. I remember because I worked at the video shop. I got the films for nothing, and um, I had a, I, I was aware of certain films, but I hadn't seen them. So I checked out I Spit in Your Grave for a start because that was one that I'd heard a fucking shitload about. Um and it was pretty gruesome, just like the you know the things, the stories I'd heard about it. But yeah. Cannibal Holocaust, I, I had to see. So when I finally got a chance to see it, um, I felt pretty horrible afterwards. I'm yeah. not gonna lie, I felt fairly dirty, and um, I, I, I that that never really shifted. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whenever I think about that film, I think back to the particular scenes that upset me. Um and I somehow a couple of years ago acquired a copied version, um a, a bootleg copy version which contained the the particular Mushrat scene that we were talking about, which yeah. you didn't see, which is on my version. And I'll tell you what it is. Uh-huh. The guy gets his flick knife out and pierces the throat of the animal while it's still alive and it starts screaming and then he takes the knife out and then stabs it again to kill it. And it's fucking horrible. It's absolutely yeah. horrible. Um, but yeah, th- this film. You, th- we're talking about the lines being blurred and stuff like that. What has come out about the film since is that all the we, we know for a fact all the animal violence is real. Everything yeah. that happened to the animals is real. Nothing that happened to the individuals is real. So all the humans didn't die or didn't you know didn't get like the 
you know, if we're seeing particular things done to people, that's all acting, right? Right. Uh-huh. Now, there is a particular, and I was talking about this on another podcast with uh, David Anders Jr., who has, a, you know, he watches this film a lot, um, and I think he takes away something different each time he watches it, but he'd mentioned about a particular psychological term in which if you put real violence alongside fake violence... Um, the lines themselves will become blurred and you will be unable to tell the difference between real violence and fake violence. You'll just think they're either all fake or all real. Uh So I think that's, on some reason, that's why the animal scenes, I'm assuming that's why the animal scenes are all real. Because when you see what's happening to the animals, when you see what's happening to the humans, you believe that's actually happening. Which Mm. adds to the the general fucking horribleness of this movie. Um, there's a couple of things to take away from it. Um, I, th- I think... On a level, I think these sort of films are necessary and relevant um, because horror... Uh, and I'm not condoning animal violence at all. In fact, it's the animal violence that affects me more in this film than anything you see done to any individual in this film. And it's because I can watch... I can watch any horror... You can kill off anyone you want in a horror film. Mm-hmm. Any way you want in a horror film, but if you touch a fucking animal, you instantly, instantly lose my interest. I don't like seeing anything done to animals. I'm just, yep. I'm that way inclined because I, I, I've always just been that way. And I know a lot of people are as well. It's that famous thing that you can harm anything, but harm the dog in the film, fuck you. You know yeah. what I mean? And, and I've done that in films. I've watched a film and then the dog's been, something's happened to the dog and I've just you know said, well, that's you, you've lost. Any any points you made in this film, you've now lost for doing that to the dog, mm-hmm. even though it's fake violence and whatnot. In the case yeah. of this one, the violence is actually perpetrated on the animals. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, that's that's something that sticks. But I, I think on some level it does serve a particular commentary about things, about the the kind of the the need for for people from the West or whatnot to stick their nose in. To other civilizations, you know, other other groups, other ethnicities, and actually force upon what they think is right and wrong. And I think basically that that final statement that is made in the film by the the guy yeah, I was like, apologist, yeah, he yes. says who is the real cannibals or something to that effect. Yeah, yeah, who who are, who are the real cannibals? Because yeah. that whilst all this stuff is getting played out, the television channel, um. As you know, the television channel until they see that the last bits of, of the film are still wanting to put this out. Yeah, that was <clears throat> I picked up on this, and it it's almost like I was struggling to fucking find something to validate this film. Yeah, um, and there is a scene towards the end. You know, he he's the anthropologist has seen the content of the tapes. Yes, These TV folk haven't seen it all. Yeah, they've and seen he's the edit. Saying you know you need to fucking burn this stuff you don't want you don't want to see what's on this if you had seen what i've seen you wouldn't want to hear this and she's going no this is exactly what we want people need to be shocked and obviously this was a kind of statement about the way tv and film and that were going at that time yeah shock value i kind of get that but it is just lost any you know ethical point they were trying to make is just lost in the fucking appalling images that appear on this screen it's the it's the 
Italian cinema has always been fairly extreme anyway. I mean, if you look at a classic case in point is as things like when when Italian cinema starts going into horror, the blood is always far more. As all the films are far more bloody, they're they're always um, the the scenes of violence are always amped up, um, and that's that's how Italian cinema goes. So it doesn't surprise me that this would be an Italian take on what was coming out about the time. I mean, it's, we'd we'd already seen films like uh, you know, we'd already seen films from Wes Craven. Um, who's obviously who became like the darling of the horror genre, but we'd already seen films from him like Last House on the Left, where you know there's a systematic you know murder and rape of people and and it's graphic mm-hmm. as fuck and that's out in seventy two. You know what I mean? So and things like um, The House of Eyes. We've already seen things like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, you know, all these films have come out. It does not surprise me that Italian cinema takes that and then, you know, does the Italian version, which, of course, is like a, a, a an extreme version of it times 100. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that. The, yeah, the underlying message is, is almost very similar to the, the video drone message that we talked about that violence sells on television. People yeah. are... People and the, 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 I mean, there's there's a couple of things, there's a couple of things on the trivia page on IMDb which I'm going to get to at the end, which will maybe alleviate some of the the, the feelings that you have about um, particular scenes within the film, but will also kind of put over exactly how successful this film was, which is the really scary part, right? So yeah, I mean that it's it's a film which, like I say, is not one that. It didn't have the same impact on me watching it the second time, I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the same can be said for films like Poughkeepsie as well. The second time you go back and see them, you know what's coming. So um, in some ways it is bad because you know the animal scenes are coming up. But in the, the second kind of thing on that is you know that this particular animal sequence is only going to last 10 seconds and then you're, you're away from it. So um, if you can just get through those 10 seconds or cover your eyes or put your fingers in your ears... Or, or whatnot, you know, you can get through it. Now, I, I think um, the, the the big thing for me on this film is the fact that they show you two different versions of people approaching the the people in the Amazon, right? Yeah. So you have you have the the group of people that ultimately died, and you see how their disrespect and horrible behaviour towards heinous, horrible behaviour to the people resulted in their death. And then you see the second, you know, our first guy who collects the footage, how he approaches the tribe, how he he strips off at one point, because there's there's a lot of tits, a lot of fanny, and a lot of cock in this film. And Um, a lot of pubic hair. There is a lot of, you know, it's the 80s, Baz. There's a lot of bush. There's a lot of bush. Uh, But yeah, you've got, um, you know, the fact that he bathes himself naked and then the people take him. Beyond uh-huh. that, and then take him to where he wants to go. Um, I mean, even the actions before that with, with his group, with the the tour guide, blown essentially what looked like ketamine into the into the yeah. uh, the wee guy's face, so he wouldn't run away. Uh-huh. I mean, and things like that. I mean, that in itself is pretty fucking reprehensible. But uh-huh. you know, we, we go along with it. Um, but yeah, there's there's. Um, it's to see the two different versions of of how they approach, and the, the tribe obviously um, is is more accommodating of the guy that is respectful than the, the one who the, the group of people that rape and murder 
um, that their people for uh-huh. for the sake of getting what they say at one point is we're going to get an Oscar for this. Yeah, you know what I mean? Right. They, they, because they they are setting up, a, they're creating their own violence and their own conflict in order to get shots which they can take back and pass off as a legitimate piece of work to put through. And I mean, I don't think for one second that this sort of shit hasn't happened before. I'm not saying maybe onto this level, but I don't think for one second that people that have made documentaries or things like that... I mean, documentaries always put forward their point of view anyway, yeah. but these people are just a very extreme version of that. And like I say, I'm not condoning the animal violence in this, but what I'll do is, before we jump back and get some more of your specific points, is I'm going to read it a couple of bits from the trivia, we'll get your points in it, I'll read it another couple of bits of the trivia, and then we'll go to the scoring for the film. Yeah. So... Um, it would not surprise you to know that 10 days after the film premiered in Milan, Baz, mm-hmm. the film was seized by the Italian courts and the director, uh, Diodato, was arrested and charged with obscenity. Mm-hmm. He was later charged for murdering several of the actors on camera and faced life in prison. The cast had signed contracts requiring them to disappear for a year after the shooting to maintain the illusion that they had died. Oh my Dear, god. So there you go. Diodato contacted uh, Lucia Barbaricelli um, and and was told to contact the three other actors who played the missing film team. When the actors appeared in court alive as well, the murder charges were dropped. So it is a controversial film for. Fucking for wow. Do you know yep. what I mean? This um, film. Oh, sorry, sorry, carry on. This film was the second highest grossing film in, wait for it. Japan in 1983 behind E.T. the extraterrestrial doesn't surprise me the Japanese got behind that Um, mad love to my Japanese listeners of which there are two by the way I know there's two of you that download the podcast all the time join my Facebook page and say hi because I am all about Japan people I love Japan you do love the Japan mate you know I've I've been over there I love Japan right Um, the iconic poster for the film shows the cannibal girl impaled on a stick which you were talking about Baz in court Diodato explained that the girl sat on a bicycle seat attached to the pole's base while holding a small pointed piece of balsa wood in her mouth fake blood was added afterwards he commented that the girl was unusually calm and remained very still during the filming um, the last point I'm going to mention is that animal deaths in the movie were real, which we've already talked about. Yeah. The list of animal deaths include a cotamundi, a yellow-spotted river turtle, a snake, a tarantula, a young pig, and two squirrel monkeys. The monkey-killing scene was shot twice, so two monkeys were killed for that scene. The dead animals were given to the tribes for food. So, um, do you want to... You, you said that there was a couple of things you wanted to get further into talking about a year thing. Do you want to kick into that just now? We'll yeah, well, you've think. actually kind of covered it. It was this, um, like, there's all this stuff about what happened. Um, yeah. And I'd heard that, you know, he was charged with murder and all that. And I'm like, well, yeah. how could he have fucking charged with murder? He'd just gone like, here's the actors here. I didn't kill them, Luke. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, <sighs> what's quite disturbing is that he obviously fucking knew the reaction he was going to get with this to make them sign a contract to disappear. Yeah, I mean, it it borders on genius, but just like with everything in this film, I just can't get past what they did and what's on that screen. Yeah, Do you know, what I mean, now if that it's fairly apparent that there was no violence actually committed against the the the, the humans in this. Um, yeah, it was really interesting to hear about the girl being impaled. 
Um, because if what he's saying there is true, if that, if that was staged by a bicycle seat... And it looks real. House, it looks real. It's fucking uncanny. But how she managed to sit with her head back like that and keep that thing pointing perfectly straight upright without moving... Yeah. ...is... I don't know. This is what I'm saying about this film. I almost don't believe that. Yeah. What you're telling me there, do you know? I'm not implying for a minute you're making this shit up, but... Yeah. I, I, there's still part of me going like that. No, I think she was fucking dead. Yeah. Um. All of that aside, there's like this violence against these animals. It, it's sadistic. And I'm like, I keep going back to the turtle scene. There, there's no excuse for what happened there. Yeah. Um. It was very apparent the way they were prancing about with its entrails and stuff like that it was done for the, the most extreme shock factor that they could generate and they did it but they should be fucking ashamed of themselves yeah do you know what I mean um, yeah as I mean um, there's a couple of more things I was reading here um, you'll be not surprised to know that Diodato has now said that he regrets everything he did especially the animal deaths he he said once that he wished he'd never made the movie. Um, Perry Perkinen, who was involved in the filming, etc., cried after filming the turtle scene. Um, I don't know how you couldn't. It's fucking mm-hmm. horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, various sources have claimed that the film was banned in 50 countries. Italy banned it for three years. Authorities at the 1993 Birmingham Comic see, uh, Fair seized the film. Norway banned it until 2003. Uh, Diodato intended for the natives to eat the fake brains from the fake monkey head. The natives talked him out of it because monkey brains were considered a, del- a delicacy to them. Um, Diodato was inspired to make the movie after seeing his son watch a violent news report on TV. He noticed that the, the journalism's, uh, journalists were focused on the violence and believed that some of the news angles were staged to capture more sensationalised footage. Uh, let's see there's another kind of really good one here it's the second of Diodato's Cannibal Trilogy I reckon that you're probably going to check the other two yeah I know I don't know if I've seen the other two Robert Kerman was a porn actor trying to that's the guy with the porn moustache funnily enough I think Uh, Ah. was a was a porn actor uh, trying to establish himself in mainstream films after this movie legitimate roles dried up and he went back to porn Uh, (laughs) There you go. So he did a bit of shagging, tried to do something else, and he had to go back to shagging. Oh, what a wee shame. Um, so, uh, when the professor bathes naked in the river, the women in the scene were hired from a local brothel. So there you go. All right. Um, and I can tell you that, uh, I'm not going to do any more of these uh, particular things, but the funniest tweet of all your tweets was when you gave the guy a hard time for not wearing a vest and for the leeches. I thought that was funny as fuck. <laughs> also, it is, it is slightly bad that I did laugh the first time I saw it, and I've laughed the second time I watched it. See when they cut that guy's cock off, and it uh, nips back to the 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 scene with the executives, and the guy crosses his leg a wee bit tighter. That makes me laugh. I um, never picked up on that. <laughs> that makes me laugh a wee bit. Um, so yeah. So anything else you want to say about this film before we ask you? Uh, uh, what, what, what the, the score on this one is yeah the pointless question um, no I don't think so I honestly I'm almost at the point I don't want to talk about this film yeah Do that's you know cool I mean um, I, I just don't want to give it any kind of recognition I just words can't describe how much I fucking hate this film 
Right. You know what right. I mean? Um, I'm kind of, kind of glad it did it. It's the whole point of this project that we're working on. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And I get it. And I, I was joking with Gil, Gil Rokotansky. I don't hold this against Gil for suggesting this film. It seems <laughs> to be the very obvious choice, actually. And it's interesting yeah. to the extent that it is very clearly the first found footage film. Um, yes. But that aside... I mean, a lot, of, a lot of what you were saying about the actors, like you thought the actors could just show up at court and you didn't realise they were put away yeah. for a while and to an extent, you know, that obviously shows. The same The same things were deployed with Blair Witch. I mean, when Blair Witch came out, their actors weren't seen anywhere and they put a massive, massive campaign at the time on the internet. It was one of the first films to ever do yeah. that on the fact that this was real. I mean, even they even put out a fake documentary which looked behind and if you ever get a chance to see it, it's fucking brilliant. Which, which looks into the history of the Blair Witch and it's chatting to people, historians and all the rest and family members, relatives of the people that went missing and all the rest, which was put out before the film actually arrived. It was put out on television in America and subsequently over here, I think it was shown on Sky, I think at the time, before people actually went out to see this, you, there was a documentary come out like the week before which basically told you everything that happened in that movie was real. All right. So, I mean, this is not the first time it's done. And obviously, the, the building blocks were mm-hmm. there. Found footage has become, depending on how you speak to, uh, a lot more sophisticated since then. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's these sort of things of, you know, it, it, as a pioneering film, love it or loathe it, um, it changed the face of horror. Um, and, you know, it sparked... It is the, the film... Without that film... Well, maybe we would have had a Blair Witch Project or a last broadcast, I don't know. But you wouldn't have, to the extent we're having just now with found footage, if it wasn't for films yeah. like that set in the stage. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, Baz, it's almost pointless, but I feel the need to do yeah. it. Uh, in the immortal battle on the pantheon, the stage of Baz versus Horror... You came into this battle sitting at a current score of four to yourself, horror at two. I need to ask you, who won, Baz or Horror? Horror won. And Horror should be fucking ashamed of itself, <laughs> to be quite honest. <laughs> but yeah, no. There, Look what you've done, Horror! There's, um, there's no way around it, Horror won. Like I said when I was talking about it, it's not a scary film. There are no frights in this film. It's just an appalling, nauseating, gut churning experience. Yeah, um, that I will never go back to. You know, a horror at its best. I mean, horror as a genre, sole purpose is basically to put out things which challenge, um, to take social commentary or challenge the way we look at things and challenge cinema and push yeah. it. That's when it's at its best. That's what horror does, and it doesn't always necessarily have to have jump scares or boo scares or just a, a feeling of dread. Yeah enough in a film an impending feeling of dread in a film is enough to make a classic horror film and I mean if I was in your boat horror wins every time with this yeah. film with me and I'm not ashamed to say that and I, I know pretty much everyone else would be in the same yeah I one. think if you if you were to watch this film and not be appalled by it something a wee bit fucking wrong with you do you know what I mean yeah. to, to watch some of those scenes particularly some of the animal ones and not I mean, I'm not a, a huge animal person. I, you know, I'd never had pets when I was wee and that. I don't have a problem with animals. Do you know what I mean? But I'm not yeah. an avid fan of fucking animals and pets and stuff like that. But you cannot fail to be appalled 
by some of the things they do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and like I say, if you could watch this and not have some kind of adverse reaction to some of the things that you see, then get yourself a fucking psychiatrist. You know what I mean? <laughs> you need some therapy. <laughs> and with therapy in mind, we're going to jump out right now. Um, you will be happy to know, Baz, that um, the next choice for Baz V Horror, and I'm going to announce this on the next show as well, because um, the next show will be the, the formal introduction of this, but I can I can hint at where we're going on this mm-hmm. one. Um, the next choice for Baz V Horror is not a public one, it'll be directly from myself, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I'll be choosing the film, and then the film choice after that, we're going to try a, a new thing, where we're going to put it, we're going to pick a podcast, and we are going to get them to choose a film amongst their podcasters. Not Rockatansky. Not Gil Rockatansky. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. I, I'm not guaranteeing it won't be the the Boho Po, but um, uh, we'll be going to them and asking them to choose a film that they think will scare you, yeah, um, and or defeat you. And what we might try and do is we might try and get someone from that podcast to come on and justify why they chose that yeah, film that as well. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, that would definitely be cool. So I think I think that may be... But we'll be doing them infrequently. We will be bringing back the public vote um, once we've went through a couple of different ones, just to change things up a bit. So we'll be coming back with some more genres uh, for you lot to pick on. We've obviously found that uh, found footage is Baz's kryptonite, so we might come back to that sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty on that list you've started to watch so yeah we're going to jump out just now and when we come back we're going to close up the show and we'll be right back after this break almost midnight enough time for one more story warning the midnight horror show is not safe for work and is definitely not for the faint of heart the following is a small sample of what you'll hear live every Wednesday night at 7 at allradiox.com I ain't heard from you shitheads for fucking years now, Webula, we do this thing that's called a live radio show on the internet. And so there's people that interact with us. Yeah, they're listening and responding to us right now in real time. He responds, who, who, who's talking shit? Fuck, Somebody's talking shit? Someone named Fuckface. And so then, Fuck you, Fuckface. Oh, oh, you think we'll go off on tangents <laughs> on the Midnight Horror <laughs> Have show? you ever listened to this show before, Mark? He was masturbating into the, the corpse of a fucking beheaded fish. Fucking uh, nasty motherfucker. <laughs> We're gonna end the show on corpse fucking this time. Apparently, anytime you talk about necrophilia, you're talking. It's gonna take a certain kind of person to watch it. Yes, it's a charmed life. <laughs> Fuck you. You can hear the Midnight Horror Show live at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time every Wednesday night at AllRadioX.com, or download the show on iTunes, Podomatic, or at the AllRadioX.com page. You're listening to the podcast under the stairs. And welcome back, and you've been listening to the podcast Under the Stairs, episode 23, which featured as our main review, Baz v Horror 7. Baz took on Cannibal Holocaust, and I think we can, well, it's not, there's no shame in this one. Yeah, there's no shame in this one at all. Um, What we have established though now, Baz, is every time you become Barry Big Boss about things, uh, our horror listeners slap you back down. Yeah, yeah, a bit slap them. <laughs> yeah, and mem- mem- remember, remember when I said to you, uh, remember when I said the sentence that Poughkeepsie was about the middle of the road with horror. Yeah. 
and there was still so much worse yeah, in yeah, it. Yeah. I think you can see where I was going when I said mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> but uh, we'll keep that for future notice. And if anything, you can always say, not that I'll, I, I know for a fact you'll never say it with any degree of pride, but you can always say that if anyone mentions Cannibal Holocaust, you have watched that film. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Can... You owned it briefly as well, depending on what you do with it. <laughs> I just got images I just got images of you when that guy at the end says, you know, when uh, the, the executive goes on the telephone and she says, burn the footage, burn it now. I just got this image of you going, too fucking right, taking the DVD out and burn it. Lighter fluid in the back garden and setting that light and watching it burn. Uh, that me, yeah. Huh? But... Uh, <laughs> I spoke too early. Um, so, yeah, um... We're to begin with the, the close of show. Obviously, I'll be announcing very soon on the Facebook page what Baz will be tackling next. It's a choice of myself to put that forward. Probably won't be for a couple of episodes, so um, just to give you a bit of a break and so I can work out exactly what I'm doing with the next couple of shows. Uh, so you've got a wee break just now, Baz. Nice. A wee sigh of relief nice. and uh, chill out a wee bit. Um, a huge, huge thanks uh, to the guys over at the Midnight Horror Show. Um, I've now become a kind of semi-permanent co-host on that show. So the plan is for me to do it like once a fortnight where I can um, and those guys have been awesome and not only promoting my show but just the love that I get over there is fantastic from the guys on the show and the listeners alike they're, they're great um, you should check out the Skeleton Crew's most recent episode it was the finale of their Scream retrospective Scream 4 I got the, the chance to finally go on that show and I can tell you right now it was one of the best podcasting experiences I've ever had in my entire life. So massive thanks to Alex, the amazing Dan Chase, who who Baz is now friends with on Facebook. Yeah, big Dan the man. Go Red Sox. Uh, and um, Jamie Jenkins, obviously. Uh, and I, you need to check that episode out. Obviously go and check out the crew if you haven't already and check out the rest of their Scream retrospective. But um, the fourth one was something a wee bit special. I, I really enjoyed the discussion. And it completely changed my mind on the fourth Scream film because I'd only ever seen it at the cinema and I hated it and um, watched it back for the show. And that film surprisingly has changed my opinion of it completely. And it's went from being my... Uh, third favourite in the franchise to my second favourite so uh, interesting what happens when you go back and watch things a second time um, once again huge shout outs to Gil and well I don't know if we, uh, can we shout out yeah, Gil so are you going to be happy with that yeah, uh, to, to Gil and Roscoe over at uh, Gil and uh, Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast they are partly responsible for, for Bazzy's viewing experience tonight Thanks for that, Gil. Um, and he did send me a message earlier on saying he did feel a wee bit guilty. So and so you should, sir. So you should. Shame on you. Um, those guys are working through their Universal Monsters um, Blu-ray box set, and they're doing commentaries, and reviews, and all the rest on it at the moment. And it's been thoroughly entertaining. Devour have started their August Underground retrospective. Um, there's a story I'll tell you off air about that, Baz, uh, because they posted live on their page that. Um, uh, Mr. Bo Ransdell will not be partaking any more in any of those films because he watched the first one and just said, fuck this, no doing it. So, but has, in his infinite wisdom, decided that if he's suffering, well, sorry, if the other guys are suffering, he's suffering. So he's put out a challenge for people to pick the worst Asylum release films. Asylum's a really bad fucking film company. Um, and give them them, and he will watch them instead and do a review of them. So he's like, 
A bit of an insane man. Um, massive love to the guys over at Horophilia, My Bloody Podcast, Terra Dome, Banana Laser, Skeleton Crew, over on my network, the League of Extraordinary Podcasts, which you, you should be checking out. Um, the Horror Bull Podcast, Podcast on Haunted Hill. Um, anything Gary Hill does, because he's just a fucking legend, plus he's got too many podcasts for me to remember in one short sentence. Um... Uh, the guys over at Graveshift Radio who have just done their vampire show, which has just dropped. And uh, I'm sure I'm missing loads. And the Midnight Horror Show, because those guys are fucking awesome. Um, it only leaves me to say, Baz, thank you very much for, for coming on the show. And thanks for putting yourself through that ordeal. That's all right, mate. It was always a pleasure. Uh, I have a few wee thank yous myself just before I go. Um, I'd yes. like to thank Gil uh, for Boho Po and <laughs> Jamie Wilson for, um, there was a bit of banter on Twitter while we were going through it the day um, and it was nice to get that, it's, it, it makes the whole experience a bit more fun when we're getting a bit of chat on the Twitter, so that was great. Anybody else is listening, join in, hashtag Baz V Horror anytime. Um, and also to Jamie Jenkins, I know Jamie was awfully worried about me and she sent me a big virtual <laughs> hug by yourself, so she did. lovely Jamie, <laughs> uh, big thanks to her as well. So, yeah, thanks to everybody that got involved <laughs> with this one. Um, and I had some good banter with Gil. I don't hold him responsible for this, but I will get him back. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Right, well, with that in mind, uh, you've been listening to the podcast Under the Stairs, episode number 20. Baz, would you like to say goodbye to our goodbye, listeners? Bye, listeners. And from Under the Stairs, take care of yourself, everyone. I look forward to speaking to you very, very soon on the podcast Under the Stairs. Until then, bye. Ooh.